0: Oh yeah Oh yeah Everything, everything, everything Gonna be alright this morning Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Izerlowe and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3.
1: The Houston Astros get some revenge on a former pitcher of theirs, and the LSU Tigers stay alive with a big win over the Tennessee Volunteers in Omaha. Good morning. Dawson Iserloh back with you again. As you may expect, sometimes long voyages across the country don't exactly go fully as planned. So RP3 uh, had a little bit of travel trouble, and he joked about me replacing him. I guess he's trying to fall farther into that trap because he's not here again today. But he will be back tomorrow. Uh, and we will be back to normal schedule. But it'll be me hanging out with you today here, 6 to 9, right here on 103.7 The Game. And we do have a lot to talk about because the College World Series continues on. The LSU Tigers will continue on for another day, and they'll get their rematch with Wake Forest. They'll have to beat them twice, and they'll get their first chance tonight at 6 o'clock. And as I mentioned there, the Astros, they go ahead and Get some revenge. They end the losing streak. Much needed. They're actually the only team in the AL West who did win yesterday. So um, a big day as far as picking up a game on those Rangers who are ahead of the division and everyone else, uh, including the Angels, who are still ahead of them at the moment. So we'll talk a good bit about the Astros. I do have a little bit of a deep dive into Justin Verlander. I want to kind of talk about that. I think uh, when he was traded to Houston and kind of the you know the surrounding Uh, narratives around that time frame, I think all get kind of lost when you look back at how successful it all was, and I wanted to kind of do a little bit of a a deep dive into the fact that it was a fairly risky move at the time, at least in some regards for the Astros, Um, and so that'll be coming up in the second hour as well. I'll talk about that. Um, We will be speaking with Ron Higgins of Tiger Details, as we always do on Wednesdays, and he'll uh, recap the LSU game for us, and we'll talk about that Wake Forest game that's coming up this evening. Um, Then at 8.32, we're going to talk with Christian Clark because the New Orleans Pelicans have the draft tomorrow. I spoke with Ali Cassell yesterday about some of the rumors around this team. Another day of information around. I didn't hear anything major in regards to the Pelicans, but we're going to see if Christian Clark has any updates for us and see maybe some of the prospects he likes or, you know, if he were to play GM, kind of what would he be doing with the Pelicans' upcoming 14th selection and everything like that. So, all that and so much more, we will hear from Jay Johnson uh, after the LSU Tigers' big victory. That'll be right coming up in the next segment. Um, but overall, it's, you know, we're almost to that stretch where sports kind of uh, die down in the summertime, but we're not there yet because the College World Series is still in full swing. Down to four teams here. I think, um, you know, not all that surprising which four it is. Maybe some people were su- surprised by TCU, but I think going in, how hot they were. You know, the only one that I maybe would have picked otherwise would have been Virginia in the place of TCU, but I think Wake and LSU on their side of the bracket made a lot of sense. I think Florida and TCU isn't all that surprising either, and that's the four we have. So a couple of teams are in better spots than others, Wake and Florida in particular, and LSU as well as TCU have a little bit of work left to do. Um, And also Major League Baseball is in full swing. There was a weird play at the plate last night between the White Sox and the Rangers if you didn't see it. Um, essentially, they were—they called the catcher for interference, said that he didn't give the base runner a lane to the plate. Um, the White Sox TV broadcast, of course, now that's the hometown broadcast of the team that got the benefit of the call, did not understand the call, thought it was a bad call, and uh, I'm right there with them. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that when the Astros come up and kind of what happened on that play. But game hotline will be open, 337-706-0111. Feel free to call in and join in the show. Uh, just keep it clean for the kids, as you know, RP3 would tell you. Um, but I do want to start with the LSU Tigers, and they had to go rematch with Tennessee, who they played in the first game of the College World Series. You know, the kind of surrounding narrative here coming in was that Tennessee had more pitching depth, maybe than anybody outside of Wake Forest and that if they were able to get into a situation like this where they eliminate Stanford and they're facing teams that are going to start to be running out of pitching in theory, uh, which LSU would have fit that mold, that Tennessee's chances were pretty good. Now, they were going to have to score because they've struggled to score at times, but there was this idea that, look, Drew Beam is on the mound and he's very good, and there's a real chance for Tennessee to do something here. Well, Drew Beam was very good. Uh, He goes five and two-thirds. He gives up six hits, two runs. Only one of them was earned and he struck out nine, but he gave up a run in the very first inning, and I thought that kind of set the tone, and overall, LSU got, by the way, maybe the gutsiest pitching performance they've gotten all season, and I'm not sure it's all that close. Um, Nate Ackenhausen, what what can you say? You know, and the LSU bullpen was maligned for so much of the year, and, you know, I, I will say the one thing I kept saying throughout the season is I understand how bad they're struggling, but given how good the offense is and how good Paul Skeens is, and even to an extent Ty Floyd it's only going to matter how they pitch for two or three weeks when it comes to regional supers in Omaha. Like, and now, did I think they'd be able to turn it around to this extent and pitch as well as they have? No, because think about it, even the game they lost in Omaha was not from pitching's fault. They only gave up three runs. So, you know, to have all that worked into what they've been able to accomplish, it's really impressive. And Nate Ackenhausen last night was maybe the gutsiest. A guy who's been a you know a bullpen arm has given them a couple outings this season where he's gone more than an inning or two but hasn't been stretched out as a starter, I mean hasn't been nearly in that role. And he goes 6 innings. Um and that that was and by the way, 6 shutout innings. So not just 6 innings, not just giving them length. This isn't a guy who just was giving you outs despite giving up a bunch of runs, but hey, you're keeping him out there because you need to save guys. He goes 6 innings, gives up 4 hits, no runs, did not walk a single batter, struck out 7. That's a key for LSU pitching. They walked just one guy yesterday, and they didn't let, you know, Tennessee look. Tennessee's a team that, as we mentioned, can struggle offensively at times, and they didn't help the volunteers out. They forced them to try to make them beat them, and they weren't able to. Tennessee had a couple of chances here and there, a couple scoring opportunities that they missed out on, but not a whole lot. I mean, really, Ackenhausen was just that good. Um, I did write down here, first inning, Dylan Cruz works a walk to start the ball game, and I thought it was one of the most patient, you know, just just set the tone for a ball ballgame. Um, now, it didn't lead to some sort of huge offensive outburst, although he did score the run there in the first inning. I thought that was huge. He ends up scoring on Cade Beloso's RBI single. But I thought his ability to kind of stay patient there, and Dylan Cruz, after not having a great game against Wake Forest, uh, reminded you just how good he is. He ends up going two for four. He hits the home run later, also drew a walk, so he's on base three out of five times. That home run, he hit the right field. Look, that's how you had to get it out because we saw a couple of balls hammered into the gaps by both teams that just got caught up in that wind. The wind was blowing in anywhere from 15 to 20 miles an hour at Charles Schwab Field last night, so you were not getting a ball out of center field unless you hit it 500 feet in normal conditions. Um, but Dylan Cruz hits one eight, an absolute missile, and, you know, talk about Cruz missile. This was... a uh, patented Cruz missile here to right field late in the ball game that kind of put it out of reach, especially considering how much Tennessee's offense had struggled. I think at three nothing they were, you know, you always feel a chance. maybe if they get a couple of base runners here and there they could have created something. Well, Cruz kind of puts it out of puts it out of reach there with that two run shot down the right field line. And so, you know, look, in these types of moments, you're facing elimination for the first time all season. You're going to need your best players to show up, and they certainly did. Not only Dylan Cruz, but also a very good game from Trey Morgan. He had a ball off the wall on the left field, uh, a one-hopper double off the wall. Um, He ended up scoring on a wild pitch in the eighth inning, but Morgan was on the bases throughout the night. He goes two for four. Funny thing is LSU has eight hits in this game, three of them from Cade Beloso. That included a bloop single, but he had the RBI single in the first. So he's got three. Cruz has two. Trey Morgan has two. We've already covered all that. And the only hit outside of that is Gavin Dugas. Uh, not a great day for Tommy White, who goes 0-5 with three strikeouts. Malazzo got a start at catcher, which was kind of a Jay Johnson, I would assume, giving Hayden Travinsky a rest day, and then also just maybe trying to shake up the lineup. Milazzo didn't get him a hit. Pearson went 0-3, Jobert for 3 But it didn't matter, because the guys who needed to show up did. And also, there were some productive at-bats. Now, uh, Jordan Thompson did not have his best day. He went 0 for 5, but he tried to get a couple of bunts down and was unsuccessful each time. Um, you know, and it was a, it was a good job they broke it down in the booth. It's kind of a, a typical, like, the, the one thing that when you're being taught to bunt, it's not dropping the barrel, right? It's moving that barrel up and down within the strike zone in order to make sure you get the bunt down. And he dipped the barrel both times and popped it up, so... That was disappointing to see because at this point in the year, now here's one thing else, you didn't bunt a whole lot in the regular season. They did it here and there, so it is tough to go and ask a guy who hasn't been asked to bunt all that much throughout the season, hey, go ahead and get a bunt down in the biggest game of the year. I understand that's difficult, but at this level you'd expect guys to be able to do it, especially when you're given two chances the way Thompson was. So that hurts you. You did get a nice bunt down earlier in that same inning, though, of the second pop-up that ends up scoring the run. Um, That was a very well-placed bunt. I personally thought the third baseman for Tennessee there could have let it go, but he didn't. Um, That was Dugas' bunt single, where it ends up Trey Morgan gets the third and scores on an error because the third baseman throws it in up the line in right field. But uh, that was a very good bunt that put pressure on the defense, and I think that's, of course, the idea. That's why Thompson was then asked to bunt for the second time when he had already been unsuccessful. But they did some little things like that correctly, even though they made a couple of mistakes. But again, the night's about Ackenhausen. And then Riley Cooper comes in, by the way, and goes the rest of the way three innings. So the two left-handers get it done for you. And not only were they great and they helped you extend your season, but they saved the bullpen. They saved the rest of the arms. We still haven't seen Javen Coleman. There's some options now for Jay Johnson. And it's starting to look not as daunting as it might have looked in the past to face Wake Forest now and have to beat them twice. Now, the interesting thing about it, is everyone, I think, is kind of counting the days and waiting until Paul Skeens can throw again. Would they do it today? I think some coaches would. And also, I think with some pitchers, maybe you would. But I I think it's worth mentioning, and we'll get Ron Higgins' perspective on this later uh, on the show, but Paul Skeens is a top prospect. He's going to go in the top five of the Major League Baseball draft next month. Um, How much does that factor in there, you know, and, and how much would he be willing to go? Now, look, if you ask Paul Skeens, I think he'd, throw as many pitches and as many innings as necessary to win a championship. I don't doubt that he wants to as well, but at what point are you going to protect him from himself a little bit? How does Jay Johnson feel about that? Look, we've seen Matt Deggs, when it came to the conference tournament, not all that worried about the typical rest that you'd give a guy. He went with Blake Marshall twice in one game, and it worked out, and 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 it, and it was excellent. It was one of the more legendary, gutsy performances. Now, that wasn't separate days, and that wasn't a situation that you have right here with a guy who was starting and throwing significant number of pitches in the first game of a World Series. Um, but I think it is interesting. I, look, I wouldn't expect him to throw today, but I would expect Paul Skeens to be available and, and possibly, if not probably, start tomorrow's game if they got there. Remember, they have to get there and they have to win today. Um, but all in all, there's some interesting storylines to think about here as far as who LSU is going to throw on the mound. You know, I, I thought it would, be, it would have been interesting if Javen Coleman would have started just because, again, we've, we've brought up that he hasn't pitched since May and you just don't know exactly what he's going to look like when he goes back out there. They went with Ackenhausen and I thought that made a lot of sense. Now, I, I think they had every intentions of throwing plenty of other guys last night. I don't think, I think if you asked Jay Johnson if he was going to get six innings from Ackenhausen, you might have chuckled and said, uh, yeah, that'd be great, but we don't, you know, we're not going to expect that. So I'm, you know, of course a lot of other guys were available last night and they didn't have to throw. So then do you start a guy like Gavin Guidry? I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. You could go opener style here, try and get an inning or two out of Guidry or somebody else at the front end, and then try and get some length from a guy like Javen Coleman or something like that. Um, You know, how, how much until Thatcher Hurd is back available again? Because, you know, he pitched in relief but didn't make a start. You'd have to look back at some of the pitch count numbers there. Uh, there are options, and it's going to be interesting. And I think, you know, even if last night's game had played out differently, and let's say you won it 12-10 and you used six different guys and three or four of them were burned for today, I think it would feel a lot different, but you didn't. You used two guys, and, you know, while Ackenhausen will be unavailable, certainly today, um, I think you'd, you'd ta- you actually absolutely take the position you're in now because I think it's about as best case you could have been once you lost the other game to Wake Forest. Cooper isn't even likely burned. He threw 40 pitches in three innings, so he's not, like, out of the question. Ackenhausen, who threw 93, certainly will be out. A lot of different layers to it, and we'll talk a little bit more about this LSU team. We'll hear from Coach Jay Johnson. Coming up next, you're listening to RP3 and Company on the game.
0: This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at the game, Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. One Oh three, seven Lafayette and one Oh four, one Lake Charles Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
2: Yeah. Great, great game. Uh, great night for our program. Um, starts and ends on a mound, winning baseball and, Two uh, big left-handers here, executed at a really, really high level. Uh, Proud of Nate. Um, Maybe a surprise, you know, from a name from a starter, but not a surprise performance. Every game he's pitched in this year, I think we've only lost one time that he's pitched the entire year. And I look for those things. Um, He did a great job executing. And then, you know, Riley, at this point, is um, probably one of the most experienced pitchers of pitching in this ballpark and having success, Um, did his deal. Uh, great performance by Dylan at the top of the lineup. Uh, we did just enough against, in, in my opinion, you know, one of the two best pitching staffs in college baseball. And uh, to beat them four times this year is, is a great great accomplishment for us because of the respect that I have for Tony and, and how well they recruit and uh, the Tennessee program. So uh, wrap that one up and on to tomorrow.
1: That's LSU head coach Jay Johnson talking about the win, a big victory over the Tennessee Volunteers sending home a fellow SEC foe there. And, you meant you know, there's a lot in that response he mentioned. How good Ackenhausen and Cooper were, of course, I think they're the main story here. I mean, who'd have thought at this point in the year, uh, given where this pitching staff was at certain points, that they'd be carried by a shutout performance on the mound uh, to win an elimination game. Just, just incredible stuff. And he, he did also talk about Dylan Cruz, who I thought was outstanding. Um, and Cruz you know and, and I mentioned that first at bat where he laid off a couple tough pitches fouled off a couple ends up working the walk he's so good at working walks and being patient by the way which makes it that much more impressive when you take a look at the power numbers and the production because he will take a walk I mean much more so than Tommy White who if you want to criticize you know Tommy who you certainly don't have to do very often he's been outstanding all year but Cruz has that extra ability to work his way on base in a variety of ways and he was asked afterwards, kind of what he was seeing at the plate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was seeing the ball pretty good today. Um, you know, it's uh, you know that's a great great pitcher on the mound today. You know, he's going to be a big leaguer for a long time, I, I believe in the future. So, um, you know, but I mean, I, I had a confidence in myself, and I was going up there and you know giving it my best shot, and you know just to draw the walk. I mean, I have confidence in all the guys behind me. So, um, you know, I feel like if I get on base, those guys are going to uh, score me at any any point. So, um, yeah, just. You know, my, my mental mindset thing is just, you know go up there and and uh, give it uh, give it my best shot, um, and it's a new at bat every single time. Now the interesting thing about what Jay Johnson did
1: on the mound, going back to the pitching performance a little bit here, is that you know there was some thoughts that it was going to be Blake Money, and uh, he ends up going with Riley Cooper there out of the bullpen um, late in this game. Now, there's some lefty-righty involved in that as well, of course, but Jay Johnson was asked what made him go with Cooper instead of money.
2: Blake had been throwing the ball really, really well. He was definitely part of the plan tonight. Um, I think um, I didn't feel like they were seeing Nate well, and I think Riley is about as comparable and close to Nate as possible, and I wanted to stay with that look uh, because they were in between, and, you know, when you're pressing a little bit, when you're in an elimination game and you're trying to chase runs late, um, he's the type of, of pitcher that if you give him an inch, he can take a mile. And, and he did what he did tonight.
1: And not only the decision out of the bullpen there, working backwards here, but you go back and think, you know, the way you're lining this up, who who do you want to start? And that's another thing that's interesting to, about, about tonight's game, right? Is how does Jay Johnson want to line this up? Because some coaches would like to work backwards in a situation where you don't have a traditional starter that's going to be able to go out there and throw for you and give you six innings, right? Sometimes you work backwards and you start using your back-end guys early because you want to ensure that you get off to a good start. Um, but overall, there's an interesting kind of thought process behind what Jay Johnson's going to do tonight. And I wonder if we can kind of gather anything And in and, and doing so. Let's listen to what he said went into starting Ackenhausen when it came to last night's game.
2: Trust in the competitor. And this is a big deal if you haven't been here before. I think our team's handled it great, honestly. And uh, I knew he would handle it uh, well. I knew he would throw strikes. Saw some things in a matchup that I liked. Um, Saw some things in previous games here just throughout the tournament that I liked that I thought he could be effective. Uh, The thought really was um, three innings, 60 pitches. Um, My initial target was 12 hitters. And, um, you know, he obviously accomplished a lot more than that.
1: So, you know, the key thing that I picked up on there is he said trusting the competitor. That's the first thing he said when asked why he went with Ackenhausen. And again, I don't know if, if there's there's a couple of different options here, and it depends how much length I would imagine that he wants to get right off the get-go, right? Does he want to get just a couple of key outs with an opener-style pitcher, you know, and, and then get some length afterwards? Does he want to? Now, again, last night, maybe that was kind of the thought. He thought 12 outs, he thought three, four innings, but he ends up getting more so. Uh, Is that in play as well? I think there's a couple of different ways to approach it, but I think a guy that I wouldn't rule out here is Gavin Guidry. Talking about trusting the competitor, that's something we've heard Jay Johnson talk about all year. That's why this freshman's been in so many big moments, because he trusts him as a competitor. You know, Thatcher Hurd is the one I I think is interesting because he threw 65 pitches. But just that being two days ago, I don't know if you go back to him. And if you did, I don't know how how much you'd expect out of him. So it makes it seem more likely that you'd go elsewhere there. But that competitor comment does really make me think of Gavin Guidry. And we'll, you know, we'll see what Jay Johnson decides to do. Um, Now let's move into kind of talking about the Wake Forest game here and, and We'll start with Coach Johnson when he asked when he was asked uh, how confident he is with the arms he has left, given you know a lot of the factors that we're talking about right now.
2: Yeah, I feel great about it, and and the reason I feel great about it is um, because of the offense that I just alluded to, uh, because Paul has been Paul and so astronomically out of this world good. Um, we've had a pretty good year from the mound, but because of some of the injuries and because of two speed bumps through the best conference in the country. There's this thought that we don't have a, a great pitching staff. I think we have a great pitching staff, and we have plenty of guys uh, to execute in a way that can give us a chance to be successful feel great about it.
1: So not very specific there um, when he was asked that question, but you get the general idea, right? I think, um, and, we, and we always talked about this. I think RP3 and I did a couple of deep dives into that exact you know idea or thought, was that Maybe people surrounding this program don't trust the pitching staff, you know, and at given points in the year, I'm sure the coaches had less confidence than they do right now, right? But that doesn't mean the coaches don't trust those guys individually and that those guys don't trust each other and that those guys don't feel every time they go out like they're going to pitch well, even if it doesn't always work out that way. And so I think you take a lot of confidence from that into, you know, a a World Series situation where... Again, they've pitched outstanding through the first, what is it now, four games or three games in this tournament, with the fourth being tonight. Um, they've got a lot to prove, and I think they've done a great job so far of you know living up to that hype and living up to that potential. Um, as you move forward against Wake Forest, here's a team that beat you 3-2. to two. It was a very well-played baseball game on both sides. It easily could have went one way or the other. Wake gets a huge hit from Bennett Lee, the two-lane transfer late in the game. They also get a huge defensive play from Bennett Lee, who picks a ball and tags Trey Morgan, who was trying to score on the play from third base. Um, I would expect a game kind of similar to that again here. Now, Wake Forest has certainly more pitching left and more pitching that is more fresh than LSU does. But again, last night changed how much of the advantage that is. It is an advantage, but it's not nearly as big as it was, right? Um, But overall, you're going to have to play a great baseball game to stay alive if you're LSU. And Jay Johnson was asked, how can they capitalize against this Wake Forest team that's so talented?
2: Yeah, they're legit going to have to go back and and look at it again, Um, you know, when... uh I saw this side of the bracket, like, and, and all eight teams here are amazing. I, I said that um, before the tournament. Of The three times I've been here, this is the best field. There's the most good players and good pitchers of the times I've been in the College World Series. Um, they are certainly part of that. Um, you know, I thought uh, Hartle threw an outstanding game. I thought their pen uh, was good. Um, they have more guys that they can go to. Um, offense, they, they have their way, and they do their, their, they do their thing really, really well. So... Um, Wouldn't want to be playing anybody else. you know. I feel like um, the four best teams in the country are the four best teams still playing in Omaha right now.
1: It'll be fun. It will be fun. That game's going to be once again at 6 o'clock. You'll have the afternoon game will be the first game of the day. That'll be TCU trying to stay alive against Florida. We'll talk a little bit more about that one later in the show. But then at 6 o'clock right here on the game, you can hear LSU in action trying to keep their season going once again against Wake Forest. Uh, pre-game will be at 5.30 with Chris Blair, of course, on the call. So we got to take a timeout. When we come back, we will shift gears a little bit. The Houston Astros got a big victory last night to slow this losing streak, maybe try and ch- turn the momentum a little bit. We'll discuss that next right here on the game.
2: We did have
1: a poll question of the day. I wanted to introduce that here before we went any further. Uh, once again, D-Lo here, Dawson Iserlow filling in for RP3 after what was an incredible voyage from Omaha back to Louisiana that had uh, its fair share of issues and, of course, some bad weather that rolled in and uh, impacted the journey as well. But he is all good, and he'll be back in here tomorrow from 6 to 9 for RP3 and company, and it'll be the two of us recapping yet another LSU game and yet another Houston Astros game. But that poll question of the day is about the LSU Tigers. What needs to happen for LSU to beat Wake Forest tonight? Is it going to have to be another pitching clinic? Do they need the offense to go crazy? Do they need to be sharp defensively? Or is it all the above? Do they need all three three of those things to happen? And, uh, of course, by the way, the foodie poll question of the week is usually on Wednesdays. We will go ahead and get back with that, but we're going to wait and we're going to let RP3 come in and have a, have an influence on it. So it's going to be a special Thursday edition of the Wednesday question, Food Poll Question of the Week um, just to clean things up there and make sure everybody's on the same page. So let's move over for a minute. Make sure to leave your votes and comments on that. We'll talk about that in the next couple of segments, of course, kind of update you throughout the show. But the Houston Astros were uh, on the struggle bus, as Raymond would certainly like to say, uh, pretty far, far onto it, I would say. But yesterday, they found a way to get off of it, and they got a big win against the New York Mets, a team that has had their own struggles this season, but had certainly kind of gotten things right in the first game of the series with an 11-1 to win. Uh, but yesterday, the Astros facing Justin Verlander, uh, of course, a former Houston Astro himself, and I'm going to talk more about Justin Verlander at the top of our number two, but Overall, it was a very well-played game for the Astros. They didn't make any errors defensively, which that has been a topic of discussion. Their defense has not been nearly as sharp in the past couple of weeks as it was for much of the season. And you had your ace on the mound, and sometimes that's what you need. When you're struggling like this, you go ahead and hand the ball to Framber Valdez and see what he can do. And Framber was absolutely magnificent. He carried a perfect game into the fifth inning of this one. Uh, started it off. Just looked as effective as he always does. That breaking ball has such sharp movement to it when he's on with it, and it was disappearing in the early goings. Couple, of, and it's it's one of those guys too. When he gets strikeouts, he can make guys look silly in a hurry, right? And um, after all the production from the guys like Lindor uh, last night, or or two nights ago, I should say, last night they were all quiet. Top four in the Mets lineup combined to go 0 for 14 and mixed in five strikeouts. So Framber was dominant there. Now he works deep into this contest, and he actually gives you eight innings. Now in that eighth is when he ran into a bit of trouble. That was the first run that he allowed. He gives up the two runs both in that eighth inning. And I thought, look, it, it, it kind of showed where the Astros are right now pitching-wise with so many guys kind of fatigued because they've had to use so much pitching in the last week or so that Dusty just kept him out there and said, man, we need him to get us through eight innings, even giving up a couple runs, giving up some solid contact, and Framber battles his way through the eighth. I thought that was big, kind of save everybody except Presley, who you go to in the ninth inning. Offensively, look, not an explosion, but you get a big two-run homer for Alex Bregman in the bottom of the third. That kind of got things going. He did it off his former teammate, Justin Verliner. There were some smiles shared there. Um, only two extra base hits in this game. Bregman and Corey Jolks hit a double, but... That was it. So still not an explosion offensively. Yiner Diaz continues to swing the bat. I mean, I don't see him coming out of the lineup anytime soon. He goes two for four, um, you know, and and that's been kind of his thing as of late. He's hitting 281 for the year now. And you know, now I think you're going to get solid quality at bats from Yiner Diaz. And I mean, think about that. He's now batting in the cleanup spot. And <laughs> who had that on their bingo card, right? And And we make jokes about things like that. But Yainer Diaz has been, you know, one of the only things that's been rolling offensively in this bad stretch for the Astros, so I think as much as you can continue to get from him, you'll take, right? And Altuve had a couple RBIs last night. He had an RBI single, which was nice in the bottom of the seventh that pushed it out to 4-0. Now, it didn't look at the time like that would be that big of a run, but once the Mets put two in the eighth, you're, you you you're know you start to realize how important that was. He also had a sacrifice fly that got them initially on the board back in the third inning. Presley came in, I just mentioned him briefly. He comes in, gets a clean save there. He did issue a walk, but no hits allowed, and gets a strikeout along the way. His 13th save of the year. We mentioned he's been a little bit rocky as of late. So for him to come in and get a save there, shut it down, was nice to see. Um, you need to win games that you have two-run leads in the ninth inning. Kevin Foote would tell you that as much as anybody would. Uh, those are important ones to to go ahead and get, right? The ones that are right there in front of you. And I think overall there are some concerns with the bullpen, specifically Rafael Montero, Montero, who at this point just you know to me isn't a viable option at this point. Um, we'll see if the Astros feel the same way. But other than him and a couple others that have been questionable, I still think overall the bullpen is going to be fine. And I think Presley's a big part of that. His ERA, even as you know, as much as it feels like he struggled, his ERA is like three point two six something in the in that area, not bad at all. So. You know, it's not shut down ninth inning reliever, Ryan Presley best closer in baseball type numbers, but it's something you'll be fine with. And um, I think overall it was a big win to try and kind of right the ship last night. Now today, you talk about the third game of the series, you're going to have Javier going, and, and one of the things about this Mets series that I brought up at the beginning of it is you had your best three guys going in it. So you started it with Hunter Brown on Monday, then it was going to be Framber last night, and Christian Javier, I think those are your three guys who you had in the starting rotation at the beginning of the season. Of course, the rest of that rotation has been mixed up. Javier, I think sometimes it gets lost how good he's been. Seven and one with a two-nine-o. He's just been fantastic, and it's been tough for him to have to pitch in different roles, right? He was kind of that long relief hybrid type guy last year for much of the season, getting some spot starts here and there, but not having a consistent spot in the rotation. You know, there's been times in his career where it looked like maybe they would make him a full-time reliever. Um, you know, a back-end bullpen guy, but then they always kind of like the potential of him as a starter. So they've balanced that and gone back and forth with it. And this year is an opportunity. And with the way Javier's pitched, of course, if he keeps this up, then there's not going to be any question moving forward that he's going to be a starting pitcher for this team. And I think that's kind of where I see him most, you know, fitting. I just like what he can do when he gives you, and when he lengthens out, gives you six, seven innings. The fastball's electric. That breaking ball, when it's on, is one of the sharper. It's a little bit more lateral than Framber's. But it's got similar life to it from the right side. And so I think, look, if you get a good start from Javier tonight, you're going against Trevor Miguel, who is, um, you know, had an okay season, ERA in the mid-fours. you got a chance to win this series and all of a sudden start to turn the way you're thinking here and the way you're playing. Offensively, of course, you still need a little bit more. And while, look, while Jordan Alvarez is out, before you get Michael Brantley back and all those things start to come back into place, You need Bregman. You need Tucker. You need those guys to be the guys. And also, you know, Yiner Diaz pitching in doesn't hurt at all. Corey Jolks continuing to swing the bat and have a very good season for you, which was kind of unexpected, is going to need to continue to happen. Um, And overall, you're going to need to score more than four runs some nights. And right now, it's been a while since this team has had a great offensive night. The game where they lost 9-7 to the Reds. Uh, in extra innings was a a sign of life for the offense on Sunday, but then they had some pitching issues, right? So, you know, before that, you hadn't scored uh, much in the last week or so back to the middle of that Washington series where you scored six runs in game one and five in game two, but you still have some things to improve there, and I think uh, we're starting to maybe see some signs of life uh, last night, but it is one game, and it's a long Major League season, so we'll see what they're able to do. Christian Javier going, and that's going to be a day game, of course. You can hear that one on the game. It's going to be a 110 first pitch, 1240 pregame with Astro launch. So you'll be able to hear that one right here on Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. But keep in mind, uh, so we'll have LSU and Astros today for you. The way the scheduling works out there. One o'clock, so we'll there will be no Jordy Holberg show. We'll have Astros baseball here for you instead at 110. We have to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll give you an update on that poll question of the day, the first one that we've had so far, and get you set up for Hour 2. That's coming up next right here on RP3 and Company on the game.
0: This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go.
1: The poll question of the day, as Dawson Israel once again here in for RP 3 is what needs to happen for LSU to beat Wake Forest tonight? Um, I hear you, Ralph. I understand that you thought it was Wednesday. Now you're confused. Uh, Ralph, by the way, says it's unreal how the pitching has stepped up, but it will take all phases to beat Wake. That being said, I'm going back to bed. I thought it was Wednesday, but without a foodie poll question, it must not be. I understand your concern, Ralph, and I did answer your question or your comment there and said I had to hold the foodie poll question until the legend returns tomorrow and tagged our guy RP3. Uh, didn't feel right to go on with the foodie poll question of the week trend here without his uh, his input on it. So especially coming off of a Father's Day weekend, I wanted him to have his input on whatever he thought that poll question might need to be. So I think it's going to work out. We're going to have a foodie poll question of the week on Thursday, uh, and that should be fun. But... Anyway, the uh, the choices here and the answers so far: fourteen percent of you have gone with another pitching clinic, uh, which is what Nate Ackenhausen and Riley Cooper put on last night. Thirty-three percent say the offense goes crazy. Five percent say the sharp defense needs to make its appearance, and forty-eight percent say all the above. I do think all the above's the clear, you know, kind of easy answer here because you know it's going to take a lot to beat Wake Forest, who, in my opinion, is the most complete team and the best team overall in the country. Uh, with that being said, I understand that, and I and I kind of like the fact that a good bit of you are saying that the offense needs to go crazy because it kind of feels like the offense is due to have a breakout game, right? Uh, this offense hasn't gone very long, you know, throughout the season without having one of those games, even when you think about the regionals, that last game against Oregon State where we saw the offense kind of, you know, break through and it carried over a little bit against Kentucky. Um, now, you're obviously facing the best pitching staffs that you faced all season. There's an argument to be made. Jay Johnson kind of discussed the fact that he thinks maybe Tennessee's the second best pitching staff in the country. And I think he kind of alluded to the fact, maybe, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he might have been alluding to the fact that Wake Forest is number 1. And we'll see. You know, I don't know if that's exactly how he feels. But you know they're certainly up there. And you faced a top-tier arm in Hartle the other night. Um, it looks like you're going to face Seth Keener tonight, and Keener is another plus arm, a guy who has tremendous numbers. We'll we'll kind of get into that matchup a little bit further you know, later down the road here in the show, but you're going to have to, you know, it's going to have to be a special offensive performance to score a lot of runs off this Wake Forest team. I think we know that, right? Or just a very uncharacteristically bad day for them on the mound. Both are possible, and, and we'll see what happens, but... Uh, I do think the offense is kind of due to break out for LSU, and I think they do need that. I don't know if you can expect whoever you throw out there tonight to give you what Ackenhausen gave you last night. It'd be great if they did, right? And you'd you you'd be ecstatic about it. Um, but that's a lot to ask. Again, I don't even think, even in Jay Johnson's best-case scenario in his head, I'm not sure he thought Ackenhausen goes six shutout, Cooper finishes it off with three more shutout innings, and we win the game five-nothing. Like, I don't think that's the way he was thinking about it. Of course, there was a ton of other guys that were going to be ready to go and ready to step in and make their impact, right? But you didn't need them. So I, I think that's kind of huge, right? For, for where they are in, coming into today and, and how many different options there are. You know, the more I read online, too, from, you know, our different LSU beat reporters and some of the Wake Forest reporters who are kind of talking and, and, you know, putting their thoughts on Twitter about what they've been hearing from the LSU side of things. I don't think anyone thinks Paul Skeens is pitching today. I don't know if that was ever even thought of um, for LSU. And apparently there's somewhat of a bit of a doubt that he would pitch tomorrow either. Um, I, I, You know, again, it, it's a difference when you're starting to talk about a guy who's going to be a top five overall pick and is going to be making millions and millions of dollars in the next month. That changes the way you approach some of these things, I think. Um, and, if it's up to Paul Skeens again, I don't think there's any hesitation. I think Paul Skeens would have thrown last night if it was up to him. But you have to sometimes, you know, protect the competitor from himself because guys just want to win for their teammates, and 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 that's the way you. The funny thing is that's the way you want guys to be wired that are playing for your team, right? But then at the same time, of course, you know, you have to have the coaches and the guys in higher positions of authority step in and say we can't have that happen, right? You know, you have too much on the line here but we'll see i don't cuz you know the other thing too is i think it's muddy when you start to talk about how many got how many rest days guys need and then if you're considering the fact that well in the big leagues and in the minor leagues he's going to be going on 4 days rest in a couple of weeks anyway and he's going to have to make that transition at some point like so i don't think there's a yes no like green light red light situation it's it's very much in the middle it's very yellowish here on when or when paul skeens can throw and when he can't but the bottom line is lsu is going to have to win games without him still here down the stretch. And tonight is the first one. So who do they go with? Does it does it is it Javin Coleman? Maybe so. I, I, I don't know. I'm starting to have this feeling about Gavin Gidry all of a sudden, thinking that maybe they're gonna want to get a few innings out of him. But then again, it, it does make a lot of sense that they would wanna save Gavin for the back end if you end up getting a lead late in this one and you're trying to shut the door. So, that also plays into it. So, maybe you'd throw Coleman earlier on, not knowing how he's going to be. You know, again, if you don't have a tremendous idea of how he's going to react to this moment or how, A, his arm health is going to respond, given that he hasn't thrown in so long, you'd certainly feel better about using him earlier in the game, whether it was to start or whether it was in relief early on, as opposed to throwing him into a high leverage spot late. So, in that, you know, th- by that thought process, I think Coleman would make a lot of sense to get the start. Um, but you also have Blake Money, who who was you know in the bullpen, ready to go last night, and we already heard from Jay Johnson of he actually went with Cooper instead of Money because the lefty lefty situation, the fact that Ackenhausen and Cooper had pretty similar deliveries, and they were really struggling to pick up Ackenhausen, so that's why he went with Cooper. But Blake Money certainly, uh, I would expect to see him at some point tonight, if not starting, then at some point throughout the game. So, you know, there's different options here, and we'll see. I think the only two guys that you can officially rule out would be Ty Floyd and Paul Skeens. I think Thatcher Hurd is maybe unlikely to throw any extended period of time. I don't know. You know, he was up in that 60. Anytime you get from that, like, 45 to 70 pitch range, it's kind of that other area of, like, how much rest do they need in that in that area. I think it depends on the guy and also depends on the coach and the pitching coach and how they feel about those things. But... um I don't think you're going to see, if you do see Thatcher hurt tonight, I don't think it's going to be for any sort of extended period of time, right? It's going to be a very short outing. So, man, all that's in play. It's it's fun to kind of think about the different scenarios, and, and again, it's, it gets made a little bit more fun by the fact that Jay Johnson's not going to reveal anything early, as he's told us all postseason. Because again, Wake Forest, we've already got pretty much, I don't know if it's an official announcement, but we know Seth Keener's going to throw, Um, and, and some of the Wake guys have already tweeted that out, so... From that perspective, we know exactly what to expect from LSU's side. It's kind of like this fun game where we get to wait till the lineup cards get handed in. So we'll see what happens. Our number one's in the books. Our number two, mentioned it earlier. I'm going to kick it off with a little bit of an evaluation of the Justin Verlander trade. I'm going to flash it back to 2017 and then kind of talk about the progression of what Verlander was able to accomplish as a Houston Astro. And then, of course, that's coinciding with the fact that the Astros were able to beat him with him being a member of the Mets last night. Our number one in the books, our two coming up right here on the game.
0: Everything, everything gonna be alright this morning Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette Here is producer Dawson Izerlowe And your big, bald, beautiful host Raymond Parts III Better known as RP3
1: Hour 2 is here on a Wednesday edition of RP3 and Company. D'Lo here, Dawson Iserlo in for Raymond Parch, the third, the big, bald, and beautiful one who had his fair share of uh, traveling, you know, issues, rain, weather, stops. It was uh, quite a day trying to get back for RP3, and uh, he is okay. I do think he found his way back late, late into the—well, actually into the morning— Um, And I'm not sure how long ago it was that he finally got back, but it was very recently um, that he even returned to the area. So, with that being said, stepping in for him, and he's going to be back tomorrow, uh, of course, for a Thursday edition of RP3 and Company, in which the Foodie Poll Question will make a special Thursday edition. I see the distress in the comments, everybody running around like there's no uh, law and order here anymore. We're all good. The Foodie Poll Question will return. Um, but today we have another question about the College World Series because I think it's relevant. So make sure to go ahead and answer that. It's about what else you needs to do tonight to try to beat Wake Forest and force the winner-take-all game on their side of the bracket. That's what we covered in Hour 1. That, along with the Houston Astros, who got a 4-2 to victory over the New York Mets last night. Justin Verlander, the former Astro, former Cy Young Award winner, won the award twice while he was in Houston he was on the losing end as the Astros got a two-run homer from Alex Bregman, a teammate, former teammate there of Verlander getting it done. And I wanted to revisit this just Justin Verlander trade situation. And I know it's going back a ways, but I felt it was relevant especially since he pitched last night for the Mets and you know, I I think people kind of lose some perspective at times and maybe even I did as well, but I think the idea that the Astros, when they made the trade for Verlander, okay, and if you'll remember, that was the 2017 season. Um, The Astros were very, very good. They had a ton of lineup depth, and they had some pitching. They had some guys, but there was this feeling that it felt like they needed another ace to put them over the top. They needed a front-of-the-rotation guy to help them out, to help the young guys out, right? You had a young Lance McCullers who was making an impact. You had... Uh, with Charlie Morton, you had some guys in that rotation, but there was this feeling that they needed a veteran presence and a and a not just a veteran presence, but a frontline ace, right? And that's why they make the move for Justin Verlander. But I did want to kind of bring up the idea that, like, while Justin Verlander was still regarded as one of the best pitchers in the game at the time. Uh, I think, and by the way, to put alongside Dallas Keuchel, uh, I I think is is a key there, too. They knew they had Keuchel from the left side, but I think they wanted that guy, you know, that option from the right, maybe a, a more dominant option. And, you know, Justin Verlander, look, in 2016, he had finished second in the Cy Young Award voting and 17th in the MVP voting, so it's not like he's coming off a bad year. But early on in the year, his ERA's close to four while he's pitching with Detroit and he's 34 years old, and there was this narrative around him, and again, it's very easy to forget it now because of how dominant he was once he was traded to Houston, but there was this idea that maybe he was losing a step. You know, the fastball velocity was dipping a little bit, and I there was some legitimate concern, and when the Astros traded for Justin Verlander, I tempered my expectations. I thought, okay, you're getting a really good guy who has playoff experience who's going to know, you know how to kind of handle a pitching staff in one of these deep postseason runs that you're hoping to make. Let's remember the Astros had made a trip to the postseason that where they lost to the Royals, but they weren't this experienced, veteran, you know, battle-tested postseason-ready club the way we think of them today. And I thought it was a good move for those reasons. But again, he had a three-eight-two ERA. Um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio was a, right around two and a half, which is crazy to think about. Um, and so I think there was legitimate concern on my part. Well, then he of course has the legendary run with the Astros at the end of the regular season, once they traded for him, where he goes 5-0 and with a one oh six ERA 6 uh, ERA in his five starts. And it's like, wow, what a home run move this was. But I think the other thing that's crazy to think about, his strikeout-to-walk ratio went from 2.63 with Detroit in that 2017 season to 8.60 with the Astros the rest of the way. He struck out 43 batters and walked five once he was traded. He follows that up, so the Astros win the World Series in 2017, everything's great. He follows that up in 2018, of course, by almost winning another Cy Young, finishing second in the Cy Young Award race. And the strikeout-to-walk ratio for the entire season was 7.84, by far better than any number in his career previously. I mean, by far, was not even close. His previous career high was 4.46 back in that 2016 season, as far as strikeout-to-walk ratio. His strikeouts per nine inning, and keep in mind here, this is now age 35 for a pitcher in Justin Verlander. His strikeouts per nine was also a career high, shattering the mark. His previous season high was 10.1 all the way back in 2009. His strikeout per nine in 2018 goes up to 12.2, more than two full strikeouts per nine innings higher, which again, when you're averaging this over nine innings and then over an entire season, that's an incredible leap to take. So, Part of that is to say the guy had a kind of a career resurgence. Of course, the Astros and their pitching coaches and their kind of way of thinking and finding a little bit more RPMs and everything that they've been able to do with guys like Charlie Morton and guys like Justin Verlander plays into this, right? But I just do think it's worth mentioning that there's this situation when he's in Detroit there at the end where... It looks kind of like he might be on the back end, and maybe it was going to be a rental-type thing for the Astros to get a few more, you know, this year and maybe next year he'll still be a decent starter, maybe that'll be it. Like, that was the concerns I had. And then Justin Verlander turns back the clock. That's why then, when you start to get into what happened in 2022, it's even unbelievably more ridiculous and just doesn't make any sense at all. Because, of course, 2020, the COVID season, he makes one start, he pitches six innings, there was injuries going into it, and then afterwards, of course, he misses all of 2021, and the rest of 2020. And now he's a 39-year-old pitcher coming off major arm surgery. And I think rightfully so, you're sitting there going, He's been it's been such a great story, and Justin Verlander's done so much for the Astros and both, you know, and just as a major league baseball pitcher. He's gonna be a first ballot Hall of Famer. That's not a question. But then you go, What does he have left in the tank? And 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 I think we were all ex- personally, I'm not gonna sit here and act like I thought Justin Verlander was gonna do anything near what he did last year. He went 18-4 and four with a one seven five ERA. Once again, now the strikeouts per nine finally went down a little bit, but the walks were at an all-time low. 6.38 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Still just ridiculous numbers. Has an ERA-plus career high of 223. Uh, it, It's just really, you know, strikes out 185 batters and 175 innings pitch. He throws 175 innings fresh off major arm surgery at age 39 and helps the Astros to their second World Series title. Like, I just don't Know if sometimes you know, and I know it's it's still he's still pitching right now, so there's going to be a chance for people to look back later at the end. There, I just think it's incredible. Now, the other aspect of this trade that I was kind of looking back on here, um, and kind of you know, just reevaluating the way the trade went down and, and what was given up. And obviously, we know this was a huge win for the Astros, regardless. Like, this was you know, nobody's suggesting that the Astros gave up too much or, or anything like that, but. When you look back at what the actual trade was, the Astros gave up Daz Cameron, who, look, at one time, you know, the son of of, of a famous major leaguer, and, and you thought he was going to be something special. I really did. When the Astros drafted him, I was very excited about Daz Cameron. It didn't work out uh, in, in Detroit for him. But Daz Cameron was given up, and of course, you know, now that ends up looking great because he didn't have a great career. Ah, uh, Jake Rogers was given up who's who's look, a solid big league catcher and is still a you know in the big leagues now is still starting to come into his own and has been a reliable player. I think the you know, the Tigers are probably certainly happy with what they got. um and and, and it's kind of cool this article by Kenny Van Doren on inside the Astros on fan Nation um on, on si is kind of looking back at it and kind of what happened to those guys and and the last part of that deal was Franklin Perez. and you know Perez still not a not a major league pitcher. so, You end up giving up three guys there. One of them becomes a decent major league player in Jake Rogers. One of them doesn't really work out in Daz Cameron. And one of them, I guess, still TBD, but hasn't worked out to this point. And you give that up for a guy who, again, like, and I think that's another thing to think about here. Why did the Tigers give him up for that price? I think they had concerns that he was on the back end. And I don't know if the asking, like, if the market was as plentiful as we think. We think of it as this deal that the Astros pulled off. They were taking some inherent risk in there. And so I, I, do, I think I try to do my best to kind of uh, explain to people that you can't look at everything with a result-oriented mindset. It's one thing Foote and I agree on, is that there's, there's different aspects to things. And just because a team loses a game doesn't mean the decisions made along the way were wrong. And just because a team wins a game doesn't mean everything was handled perfectly that Justin Verlander trade was not a slam dunk. This is going to easily, you know, be a great deal for the Astros at the time. And the fact that he, you know, look, part of it is the Astros are probably pretty confident. Hey, if we get him in the building, we got some guys right now that know how to work on some spin rate stuff and he's going to be great. Yeah, that's part of it, but they're still, they were taking a risk. And, uh, like not only for Verlander, even if you'd have gotten the last couple of years of the Tigers, Justin Verlander, you'd have probably been pretty happy because he was still a very good pitcher. Again, I mentioned it. Now he hadn't made an All Star appearance since 2013 when they traded for him. It had been four years, but he had been in the top five of the Cy Young voting um, the year before in 2016. So I think that's kind of where you're you're hoping for. But like in 2014, he had a rough year with a 4.54 ERA. His you know. Going back, that's his career high, except for the very beginning of his career in 08 when he had a 484. So there were some doubts here and there were some risks, but all in all, the Astros end up making a great deal that changes the trajectory of the franchise as far as their postseason success, helps them win two World Series titles and get to numerous other ALCSs, and um, I thought it was worth kind of revisiting today. So that's my Justin Verlander reevaluation of that trade, kind of putting some more context around it and taking a look at just what was one of the more incredible runs for a pitcher at that point in his career, between ages 34 and 39. And now he's pitching into his 40s, and look, the year has not gone the way he wanted it to. The Astros, I thought he was okay last night. He didn't get roughed up by any stretch, but, you know, Bragman hit the two-run homer, and the Astros got the best of him. So it um, will be fun to see kind of if he's able to turn it around with this Mets team. Scherzer certainly looks like he's figuring things back out, so maybe Verlander follows suit and uh, figures it out as well. Maybe not. We'll have to wait and see. we got to take a timeout. When we come back here on RP3 and Company, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and I'll explain that. We'll also update the poll question of the day. That'll be next.
0: This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity In in the workplace. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: question of the day is what do the LSU Tigers have to do tonight to beat Wake Forest and set up that winner-take-all game? You have a lot of different options here. I decided to kind of make things, um, you know, uh, try to hit it from all different angles, right? The first option here is uh, another pitching clinic. Nate Akenhausen and Riley Cooper were outstanding against Tennessee. That's what they'll need again. 12% of you are saying that's the answer. The offense going crazy. 41%. It's catching up here. It's catching up. It's now in second place. Sharp defense. Nobody likes defense. Nobody likes fielding ground balls, apparently. 3% say sharp defense, and 44% say all of the above. So it's a tight race between just the offense. You think, you know, look, I think it's kind of fair to see it from both sides. One, a- a- one aspect of this says you need to play an all-around great game. You just need, you need to pitch well. You need to play good defense. You need to hit the ball. But then there's another aspect that goes, I just don't know if the pitching can do it again. Let's score a bunch of runs. And see what happens that way, right? Score 15 runs or 10 runs or 8 runs, depending on how you know how much you think going crazy, what your metric of measuring that is. And then see if it, you can outscore Wake Forest. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, overall, it's going to be fascinating. A couple more comments. Ralph says, what happens when you use your favorite station as your calendar? And then he shares a Michael Scott gif. Now, look, I understand, you know, maybe uh, I hope you didn't miss any big appointments today thinking it was not Wednesday because without a foodie poll question, how could it be? Right. Um, JBK, the OD says ballpark hot dogs, chili cheese, honorable mention for corn dogs. I guess he's answering the question that doesn't have to do with food with a food related answer. And I respect that approach to things. Hart says pitching, pitching, pitching will be the most important factor in tonight's game. Wake is just as much of a threat of putting up a lot of runs quick. Did I mention pitching? No, I get it, I get it. John Paul Cajun Daddy, uh, maybe in response to Hart's question, because he outdoes him by because he puts hits five times, hits times five, to win one with the bats, lots and lots of bats. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of different perspectives here. Steve says Shoe's had the lead in every inning but one in the College World Series. Wake Forest is not unbeatable. They just need to play with the same intensity they started with from the opening pitch. If the middle-of-the-order bats wake up, Wake will have a problem. And B-Rad says all. First, the pitching needs to get off to a good start. Second, the bats need to get hot from Jump Street. If we get that, the Tigers can take them. No, I mean, I don't I don't disagree with anything here. Uh, a lot of, you know, passionate Answers on one way or the other. Some saying it's got to be all about the pitching. You have to get a great performance. But some saying uh, it's got to be the offense. The offense has to wake up and kind of carry this team the way they did for large stretches of the season. You know, I would still think, even though you got the the outstanding effort from McEnhausen and Cooper, I would still think the bats coming alive and, you know, trying to outscore Wake. Again, I, I said 15 runs. That was certainly an exaggeration. But getting 8 to 10 runs on the board, I think, is, is your best case. Most likely, I should say, scenario. Uh, and maybe beating this Wake team like eight to six or, or ten to eight, I think that that's where you you kind of that's where my brain goes of thinking through scenarios in which they win the game. Um, the other thing too is you got to beat them twice, and if you're going to beat them twice, I think you probably have two different looking games. One of them maybe you do get that pitching performance right, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe Skeens comes back on early rest, maybe not. I don't know, but. Uh, I think one of those games you'd have to certainly pitch better than the other, and one game you'd certainly have to break out offensively. I just don't think you're going to beat Wake 3-2 Wake to two both days, you know, the way they beat you. I don't think that's in the cards here, but it's baseball, and we've been proven wrong before. So I did want to go over to the other game of the College World Series and the other side of the bracket here and talk about that a little bit. Um, Oral Roberts, everybody's favorite Cinderella story, came to an end yesterday. <clears throat> They lost to TCU. It was a game that went back and forth as far as momentum runs, but yet Oral Roberts could never find their way on the scoreboard despite having tons of opportunities. And in that regard, TCU pitched very well. They certainly pitched well situationally, um, and they were able to hold off the Golden Eagles in any chances they had. TCU got a run on the board actually when they walked in a run in the second inning, Um, but Oral Roberts was able to limit the damage there, went to the fourth, where it was a a balk that brought in the second run of the game. So some weird situations in which TCU gets runs. There were a lot of controversial calls in this game. By the way, there was a play later on where Oral Roberts dove for a runner who was headed to third. There was already a runner occupying third base, so you knew they were going to get one out out of it. And the other runner kind of comes off the bag. It kind of looked like he was knocked off the bag by the defender. But he was also called out. So it ended up being a double play. That was after review. I think a lot of people were upset about that call. Um, but there were just there were a lot of reviews in this game. It took forever. <laughs> a lot of questionable calls one way or the other. Um, but anyway, TCU's kind of breakout happens in the fifth inning. They get an RBI single, a sacrifice fly, and then a two-run single to make it 6-0. And at that point, it felt like it might get out of reach. To Oral Roberts' credit, as they have all year, they began to battle back. They got a run in the bottom of the fifth. They had a chance to threaten for more. Jonah Cox, who was their best player all season, had the ridiculous 48-game hitting streak, had three hits in this one. So he gets the RBI single, and you start you start to go, well, here they come. But TCU gets out of that jam. A couple other base runners in the next couple innings, but don't come to pass. Then in the very last inning, in the ninth, Oral Roberts loads them up. The tying run is on deck, so after even being down five runs, they start to you start to see light at the end of the tunnel. But once again, TCU is able to extinguish the flame, and it was Fieser there who pitched the last two innings and got him out of that. Um, but a lot of base runners and a lot of dancing out of danger for the Horned Frogs, they're going to need to probably pitch a little bit more efficiently, I would think, against Florida. Uh, you're asking a lot to continue to get guys out of jams like that, but TCU has pitched so well over the last... 2 weeks. That's the funny thing about it because in the regionals they they scored a million runs and I think it was just this idea that wow they're going to be able to outscore a bunch of teams but that's not how they won the you know the what became the Fort Worth Super Regional against Indiana State who wasn't able to host it. They won a couple of low scoring games. 4 to 1 was the first game there and so you know they end up winning a super regional with pitching and then they they end they come to Omaha and they've kind of done it with pitching once again. Right, going back, they lose the 6-5 game to Oral Roberts in the first uh, of the tournament, which was a tough blow for them because they had a lead. Then they beat Virginia, one of the best offenses in the country. They hold them to three runs. They beat them four to three. And then they come back yesterday with a 6-1 to one performance. So now, once again, it's the pitching staff for TCU that's heated up. They did have to dance out of danger. I saw a stat. Oral Roberts in their two losses here to Florida and TCU in the College World Series had 25 runners left on base combined in those two games. So it was not for a lack of chances, um, and but look, and the funny thing, too, when you think about the first game, what happened? Oral Roberts got the big hit in the big moment, the three-run home run to take the lead. It was the big, the one big hit they needed, they got. The next two games, they never get the big hit despite having a lot of opportunities. They certainly could have beat Florida. They had chances there at the end, and the same thing could be said against TCU, and that's sometimes how baseball works, right? Look at Wake Forest right now. They have two huge hits in this World Series. I don't know if they have... Uh, You know, I mean, they have three runs scored in both games. They get an RBI single to take the lead in game one, win it 3-2, to the two-run single. Then Bennett Lee with the RBI single through the left side to beat LSU 3-2. to They've gotten the hits when they needed them. Tonight, there's a decent chance Wake comes up with a lot of opportunities. Do they get the big hit in the big moment? Does LSU get the big two-run, you know, double in the gap when they need it? That can change these things. When when you're dealing with teams that are all on a level playing field, so to speak, a, at least close to being a level playing field in the College World Series, the best eight teams in the country, it's going to take the big hit and the big moment. And sometimes it's kind of funny to simplify baseball down to that, but we'll see. Now, for Florida, it's interesting because, uh, you know, they have, I think, more pitching depth, depth, I should say. Uh, they have more options at this point than TCU does just because They've uh, played one less game. There were some situations, there were kind of some, you know, who are they going to go with here and there in that last game against Oral Roberts where they ultimately go with the freshman left-hander. If you'll remember, they had to remove their All-American closer by accident. Um, But now they start to reset things, and I think that's where Florida has an advantage here is just they have more starting options available that haven't pitched a ton. But TCU, on the other hand, only threw three innings with their starter against Oral Roberts yesterday. They've had, you know, that bracket started a day earlier, if you'll remember. That one was the one that got going on Friday. So overall, the teams have had more rest. They've had more time off. Um, Nobody threw more than 46 pitches for the Horned Frogs yesterday. They had four guys that all threw between 37 and 46 pitches. Um, So... In theory, you know, you can use any number of those guys out of the bullpen here, especially within. If not today, then certainly tomorrow, those guys will be available. So, you know, I think there's some different ways to look at it here. I think there's a couple of different advantages and disadvantages to it. But Florida, you know, it's funny too. I don't know if they've played their best baseball at any point in this postseason for a, for an extended period of time. Like certainly the Earl Roberts game, they had some questionable things go against them later later on, and they held on. Um, We saw them lose a game in the regionals to Texas Tech, but then bounce back and look sharp afterwards. Like, I just don't know if Florida's even reached their full potential yet, and they're going to have to pretty soon here. And so if Florida plays well, then Florida will win, and they'll be in the championship series. But there's always the threat of that TCU offense getting somewhat remotely hot the way they did in the regionals, and if that happens, then Florida's in trouble right away. we got to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll talk more about the LSU-Tennessee game last night and preview LSU and Wake Forest. With Ron Higgins of Tiger Details, that's coming up right here on The Game.
0: This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette. One oh four one Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station.
1: Welcome back into RP Three and Company, Dawson Iserlo. D'Lo here in for RP3 on a Wednesday edition of the show, and we've had plenty going on already. Of course, in our number one, we recapped LSU and Tennessee, took a look ahead at Wake Forest, uh, the the rematch, I should say, with Wake Forest and LSU. Also looked at those Houston Astros. Been struggling lately, but they figured things out at least for one night. Uh, Got a big victory. We're not only uh, getting a win to end a losing streak, but they did it against a former ace of theirs in Justin Verlander. So we talked about that, and then I did a little bit of a deep dive into that trade back in 2017, because it was kind of reminding me of that whole, you know, time frame of when the Astros were making uh, making deals, making runs at it. It was they were doing it all for the first time. Let's remember uh, not having had won the World Series yet at that point. But right now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that LSU Tigers team and getting a win last night, and now moving forward with a chance to. Uh, Get to the championship series. They'll have a tall task, and they'll have to beat Wake twice. But they've got an opportunity to potentially do so. To so to talk more about that is Ron Higgins from Tiger Details. Ron, first of all, how was the movie? Are we all good with the, with everything last week?
3: Yeah, the movie was good. It was a, it was a good shoot. I enjoyed it. Uh, long day, a fourteen hour day ended up ended at two thirty in the morning. Wow! <laughs> but other than that, it was good. Good good shoot. It was. Uh, Still did my old high school in Baton Rouge, which was uh, kind of cool. So, yeah. um,
1: you
3: know, about 49 years and a month after I graduated, I got to walk across the stage and I graduated on. You
0: know, there you
1: the go, go. All right. Well, let's go from that to baseball. And the Tigers, you know, after what happened against Wake, it was such a kind of deflating loss because they felt like they were right there. Now season's on the line. you got to face a Tennessee team that we knew had more pitching depth or at least more consistent pitching depth. And Drew Beam was going to be on the mound. Seemed like a bit of a tall task, but then Nate Ackenhausen decided to give the performance of his life and keep them in it.
3: You know, he was good early in the year, I and mean, he got hurt, and and he came back and was was okay. Uh, well, obviously, I mean, uh, Jay Johnson, you know, pushed the right button, chose the right guy. You know, uh, there was thought that Jabin Coleman might start. He might start tonight. Um, uh, and uh, this thought that yeah you know Riley Cooper would come back and pitched when then he did, but in relief, which was a good move uh and then Ackenhausen saved their season and it really got him to a point where I think this whole team is motivated on the fact they win this game, they have Paul skins going tomorrow <laughs> uh and which actually gives you your best chance to get to the finals, and so that. And that's their motivation. I mean, we get, we win tomorrow. We win tonight. We get Paul Skeens tomorrow, and uh, I think that's a huge motivation for him. Uh, the pitching has been great in, in, in this World Series. Pitching has been great from both teams almost every game. You don't see a, a, a really implosion by any pitcher in this World Series. That's why these teams are here. Uh, you know, LSU. You know, battled last night. Struck out a bunch again, but you know, they I thought they saw the ball better last night, hit the ball a little bit, a bit better. Uh, wind was blowing in big time, 20 miles an hour, uh, which helped the pitching, which held back in houses game plan. Uh, but you know, late in the game, it finally died down, and, and Dylan Cruz snuck one out of the park, uh, to kind of you know, exhale, LSU exhale a little bit in the top of the ninth. and, uh, then Rollie finished it off, but I thought it was, uh, you know, one of the great pitching performances in, in LSU's had in, in college world series history from a guy who hadn't started a game uh, since last May in junior college uh, at a district tournament in New Orleans. Uh, so, yeah, a clutch performance. I, I can say it was just uh, clutch performance.
1: So I've seen a little bit of doubt by some that Skeens would be ready for tomorrow. Are you pretty confident that if they get to tomorrow's game that he's going to be good to go in in a regular starting situation?
3: The guy's pitched before. I mean, the guy guy pitched Saturday. There's been been a ton of times this year where he's pitched Saturday and then started on Thursday. So I don't know why people are so concerned. Like, he may not start. He's done this several times all year where he pitched on a Saturday – and start the Thursday opener in the SEC play. So I'm I'm not concerned at all. I mean, he's done this a bunch.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's not it's, it's, it's not a stretch. It's it's he it's something he's done this year. Right. Uh, yeah, so no, I'm not concerned at all. Not at all.
1: Offensively, you know, they they haven't had that breakout game yet here in Omaha, but it does kind of feel like things are starting to trend in that direction. Last night, I think there's a couple of balls that are probably out on a normal day. Uh, certainly in a different ballpark. Um, do you get the idea? Now they'll have to face, you know, a, an elite pitcher tonight in Seth Keener. But do you get the sense that the offense is ready to break out, or do you think they'll have to pitch as well as they've pitched so far?
3: I think you got to pitch as well as you've pitched so far. I mean, I think, I think pitching wins this thing. Uh, that ballpark isn't it really the dimensions aren't that much bigger than Alex box stadium. And they really aren't. It's just the fact the wind is constant and it blows in and is just, it just kills anything in the air, the outfield it just just like knocks it down. Uh, you know, but you know, if if LSU can, you know, just get hits, they don't have to hit homers, but they get a singles, they get extra base hits, move people, uh, they can, they can win. And I know LSU's uh, MO was a big slugging team coming in, but they also knew Omaha was a tough place to hit on home runs, not because of the size of the ballpark. Now, I know everybody talked about how big it is, uh, but it's just it's the win that, that it causes the problems. Uh, so, I mean, LSU's got to come up with, I mean, they're tapping the, 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 the bottom of the barrel when they're pitching now. I mean, they're at the end. Of guys who are available, you know, Gavin Gidry, Griffin Herring, uh, Blake Money, Coleman, uh, Bryce Collins. I, 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 I the only guy on this team that's uh, left, really. You know, honestly, uh, the only two or three guys on this team have started NCAA tournament games, and and one of them is 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 Jevon Coleman, started a couple of years ago in, a, in NCAA tournament game before he got the Tommy John surgery. Uh, I feel like they'll probably go with him. To start, man. I'm just, I'm just guessing here. But listen, you never know what Jay Johnson's thinking. Yesterday, we all thought, uh, I thought it might be Cohen or, or really Riley Cooper because he trusts Cooper so much, and um, he, he shocked us all with Nate Eckenhausen. and it was uh, again push the right button.
1: How do you feel? Do you like the ballpark? Because I've seen some people on other sides of it. I kind of like the way that it changes the way kind of teams have to approach things once they get to Omaha. Are you a fan of that, or do you like a ballpark that's more offensive friendly, like the old Rosenblatt?
3: I like I like this ballpark. I like baseball. It's a uh, it's a challenge. I, I mean, it's like when I watch a golf tournament. I want I don't want to watch a golf tournament. Guy hits you know scores twenty one under to win. I'm right with you. I, mean, I, I want a guy who's constantly challenged on every every hole with layout and and wind and conditions. Uh, no, I, I like this ballpark. I mean, you have to earn it. You really have to earn it. It, it, it tests every aspect of your game, and your your pitching has to be spot on. And, and 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 you have to find ways to scratch out runs. I mean, LSU scratched out runs last night. They scratched them out. Uh, uh, they they scratched out runs almost every game here. But, but I think. But you look around, there a lot of teams have been scratching out runs. But that, that's the nature. You get to this level, all the pitching is good. Uh, it's a pitch, pitcher's ballpark, and so you got to find ways to uh, create offense somehow.
1: So, I thought of the idea of Gavin Gidry, You know, I in for, in my opinion, I think he's the guy that Jay trusts the most. That's left that can give you you know full length here. And I was thinking maybe he uses him as an opener type guy to get the first three innings, try and face the top of the wake lineup. But I almost wonder he wants to have that option later in the game with a lead do you think he would kind of try to save Gidry? um and maybe you start Coleman in a less high leverage spot early in the game or do you think there's a chance he goes with Gidry right away
3: I think he saves Gidry. I, I just uh uh Coleman's used to he's Coleman's started three games this year uh, again he's had NCAA tournament experience uh and a lefty yeah I I I I think he he'd want to save uh, Gidry on the back end. I mean, I I could see I can see him go probably Coleman uh, Coleman and Herring, money and Gidry. You know, money very short. If you get anything out of Blake Money without him, like imploding somewhat it's 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 a good deal <laughs> uh i mean i think i think if, if coleman gives them three innings it'd be unbelievable i mean, four innings would be great if you if you gave him four innings uh and you, you know you get one out of cooper at five you get two out of Herring at seven that gets you that, that gets you to the last two innings with Gidry, which is with which is what you want uh you know maybe they even get to the get three innings out of Gidry, it all, all depends but but I mean those are the guys i I think you'll see and um I just I feel like he'll, he'll go with Coleman because he's had starting experience uh this year and in in NJ tournament
1: do you think it's any concern that Coleman it's been so long since he's pitched I think what a, almost a month at this point
3: well I mean a lot, of, a lot of these guys hadn't right hadn't pitched that much I mean Eenhauser hadn't hadn't pitched that much I mean uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think I think these guys are just itching. To, I mean, they're itching to go. I mean, I mean, there's two ways you look at it. You can say, well, he hadn't pitched a long time, and will he be tight or or he, will he be well rested? Right. <laughs> so you can, you can look at it both ways. I, I just think uh, I'm sure a may have some nerves, but the fact again, the fact he's he he's pitching. I think he's even started in uh, in say a tournament game. Uh, is a is a help. And I, again, I think this—I think this whole team is motivated by it. this. You know, <clears throat> let's get to you know. We got we win tonight. We got Paul Skeens tomorrow, and I think they want to win. And they know they have a really good chance of winning the Paul Skeens. And and I know it's not at the top of their mind, but they would like Paul Skeens to get the chance to break the uh, the SEC and school strikeout record held, held by Ben McDonald. That, I Man, that's in the back of their mind, but. They know they get to tomorrow and get Paul Skeens. they got uh, a pretty good chance of winning. And, again, uh, Skeens has done this several times this year where he's pitched on Saturday and come back on pitch on Thursday when the SEC series opened on Thursday. So uh, it's doable for him. It is.
1: All right, Ron. Well, we appreciate your insight, as always. Should be fun to see. And um, we'll see if we're still talking about this team come tomorrow. Thanks for coming on.
0: All right. Take care. I'll see you. This is RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. You know the routine. Eat, drink, sleep, and sports. All day... Every day. You're listening to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
2: The, the changeup was really working with, uh, for me. I know with the wind blowing in and how hard it is to hit a ball out of here. Well, on a normal day, I was just like, like I'd get a two-zero change-up call, and I'd just throw down the middle and say, "Let him put it in play," because you've seen some balls hit today that were probably one-zero-eight off the off the uh, off the bat, and they were caught at the warning track. So I pitched with confidence, had confidence in my defense behind me. Yeah, the big park definitely played in my confidence, just to be able to fill up the zone and. Trust my pitches for the weak contact, and even if they got into it, it's really hard to hit it out of the park. So, yeah, I was throwing all four pitches, and, yeah, I just trust my defense.
1: That's Nate Ackenhausen and Riley Cooper, the men of the hour, the men of the day for the LSU Tigers as they combined for a complete game shutout, six of those innings going to Ackenhausen and three of them going to Cooper, and they were discussing there kind of what was working for them. And I think that theme is important, right? Using the bigger ballpark, using the wind blowing in. We saw, again, Dylan Cruz hit a ball. Now, he did get one out later in the game, but he had a ball uh, in this game that was crushed, that just died based on the wind. And I saw a couple others that happened. Tennessee hit a couple that were hit pretty well, and you started to think when it was off the bat, maybe so. And then it's just, no, it's just never going to get out of there, right, with the wind blowing like that. So that's an advantage. And You know, it's something to think about. We'll see. Now, the wind can shift because, again, LSU's first game against Tennessee, it wasn't exactly blowing in like that, and we saw them get some balls out of the yard, right? So we will see what it looks like tonight, but uh, those two guys were outstanding. And our poll question of the day here on a Wednesday edition of the show uh, is what does LSU have to do to get it done tonight against Wake Forest and force the winner-take-all game, which would be tomorrow? Tomorrow. 11% 11% of you say another pitching clinic. It's got to be, you know, those guys we just mentioned with Ron Higgins, Gavin Guidry, uh, maybe Blake Money, Javen Coleman, uh, Griffin Herring. Those guys have to be great again. 11% of you say that. 36% say the offense has to go crazy. It carried this team for big stretches of the season, and it needs to show up again against the Demon Deacons and their elite pitching staff. Just 2% of you say the sharp defense, and 51% go with the all of the above. I think that's the safest answer here. You'd love for all that to happen, but uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to continue to get pitching performances from guys that you haven't gotten them from necessarily at certain points throughout the year. Ralph says on Twitter, By the way, home plate ump was outstanding last night, consistent for both sides, breath of fresh air after Monday. Hope tonight's crew visits Rocco's before tonight's game. Um, I don't know if you want them to visit Rocco's before the game or maybe uh, if you're just, you know, it depends how you're suggesting they visit Rocco's, right? But anyway, um, no, I did think the umpiring was much better. I thought the home plate umpire was pretty sharp last night. There was maybe a couple of calls here and there that I uh, questioned. I didn't write any down though, so none that I felt that strongly about. Whereas uh, on you know Monday's game, I, I felt pretty, pretty strongly both ways were a lot of bad ones, maybe a few more so for LSU than for Wake Forest. So yeah, no, I, I hope you get a better situation now. Usually, even if it's different umpiring crews, you're usually rotating who's behind home plate. So I don't think there's any situation in which you're going to have the same home plate umpire that you had on Monday night. And maybe that's good news for Wake Forest and LSU fans, because uh, I don't know if anyone would prefer to have the same guy back there as it was. But, you know, we did discuss the decision to to go with Nate Ackenhausen. That, that Jay Johnson made. And, and Nate was asked afterwards, you know, when did you find out you were starting on the mound? Obviously, he isn't used to being a starter all the time. And, and what was kind of your reaction to that? And here's what he had to say.
2: Coach texted me at 8.56. I didn't respond until 11.10. I was sleeping in a little bit. So, I think I just texted him. I'll give it all I got. Yeah, I can confirm the time lapse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, man.
2: So there you go. Uh,
1: It it was not an enthusiastic response for uh, Nate Ackenhausen to finding out he was starting. He just said, okay, I'm going to go out there and do my thing. And I think that speaks to the confidence level, right? This wasn't a situation where a guy who hasn't really started games, certainly hasn't started a game of this magnitude, um, but really hasn't started all year. He wasn't sitting there going, oh man, now I'm nervous. I got to go out there on the biggest stage and our season's on the line. He said, okay, I'm going to go back to sleep. But then when I wake up, I'm going to let coach know that I got this and uh, you certainly saw that type of response from him when he was out there on the mound because he was fantastic. Uh, Just a gutsy, gutsy performance. Um, You know, look, use the win to his advantage. Use the ballpark to your advantage. I think that all comes into pitching. That's all something you're supposed to do, and Nate certainly did that. Riley Cooper followed him up and um, was, was just as good and kept the volunteers off the scoreboard entirely. I think a little bit of a different test tonight, a better offensive team in Wake Forest, a team that hasn't quite gotten their bats going in Omaha, though. Maybe that's a factor here. Wake's only scored six runs combined in their two games, um, and it took some timely late hits both times to get those runs on the board. So maybe else you could take advantage of a team that's starting to kind of scuffle for really the first time all year offensively. Hour number two in the books, hour three, coming up right here on The Game.
0: Oh, yeah. everything 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 gonna be all right this morning live from the delta media studios in upper lafayette here is producer dawson iserlo and your big bald beautiful host raymond parts the third better known as rp3 8.03
1: here on a Wednesday morning on RP3 and Company on the game. Remember, we are broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. Evco Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. Dawson Izerloh here in for RP3 once again after uh, a long day of travel and uh, kind of, uh, you know, extenuating circumstances leading to RP3 not being here this morning, but he's going to be back and better than ever tomorrow, or maybe questionable whether or not he'll be better than ever. He's already questioned as much on Twitter. So we'll have to see if he brings his A game. We'll have to hold him to that. The foodie poll question of the day will return tomorrow. I know there's been plenty of concern on Twitter uh, about where the foodie poll question of the day is and uh, why it's not happening today. Wanted to bring back RP3 before we got back into the foodie poll question of the week. So we will have it for you. No worries. It didn't go away. It did, it's not extinct. It's just delayed by one day. And the LSU Tigers are going to look to delay the exit of their season potentially uh, for another week or so if they make it as far as they want to, but certainly another day because they're going to try to beat the Wake Forest Demon Deacons tonight in Omaha. Um, we've talked a little bit, well, not a little bit. We've talked a lot about it today so far, kind of who the pitching options are. I think you see any combination of Javen Coleman, Blake Money, Gavin Gidry, Griffin Herring. Um, are the names that immediately come to mind. But, you know, there were nine guys available, according to Coach Jay Johnson going into yesterday. You only used two. So, in theory, you got seven guys that are available today. And we'll see kind of what combination he chooses to use those guys. Um, you know, I wanted to switch things up here in this segment. It's never too early to talk New Orleans Saints. We've talked a good bit of Saints camp, mini camp, training camp. We've done it all in the past couple of weeks. But there was an article that came out yesterday on ESPN.com from Catherine Terrell. Actually, it was posted early this morning. And um, it has some interesting nuggets, too, and a couple of things that I kind of thought were worth commenting on. But, you know, Catherine Terrell's article goes into uh, five different things and observations from camp that that she had. And it's a great article, but one thing that was brought up is this Taysom Hill role, and that's where I wanted to start here. And, you know, she suggests that this role still includes him playing some quarterback, right? It's still a hybrid kind of... Joker-style role, but I had my questions about this throughout the off because of how it ended last year. The decisions, you know, in the front office, bringing back guys like Dennis Allen as the head coach, guy like Pete Carmichael at the offensive coordinator spot, because um, it felt in some ways like Taysom Hill's role evolved more than it ever had. But then it felt in other ways like it had maybe taken a step back and was kind of stagnant in some in some games specifically. I think game to game is a key thing, and I understand a lot of coaches see a game-to-game matchup and maybe a way that a defense does something, a way that they're stacking the box in a certain regard and a certain look that they know they're going to get if they present a personnel package that deems that they will you know, receive that look, right? So I get all that, but I still think at times it was frustrating to see the lack of Taysom Hill usage when he would come off of a game where he'd rush for 95 yards and two touchdowns, and the next game he'd get maybe three or four touches the whole game. So I am really interested to see what does it look like this season. Now, again, with a new quarterback, hopefully a more competent offense, I think part of the reason sometimes they relied on Taysom last year is, you know, less so how strongly they felt about Taysom's abilities and more of an indictment on how they felt about the rest of the offense because, of course, there were times where they were pretty limited. Um, But at the same time, they never chose to fully go with Taysom either as the quarterback or in a full, you know, split time type situation with him at the quarterback position. So I think that tells you in some ways that they were never able to commit to it. I do think he's kind of in a situation this year where, you know, look, and he's stressed for a long time that he wanted to play quarterback in this league. And that's why he chose to have the quarterback competition that he did with Jameis Winston when he was ultimately beat out. And then of course, a lot of different circumstances happened during that season with Jameis's injuries and everything else. But uh, i think he wanted to play quarterback i would imagine and i don't know this for sure but i would imagine at this point in his career he has started to probably accept that he's not going to be a quarterback anymore and i think the move you know quote unquote move to tight end last season suggests that um but and of course he's not a tight end i think rp3 and i cover that enough it's it's just it doesn't you know they have to listen somewhere so it's fine they can listen to tight end but overall though I, I just wonder where the you know the evolution of this role is for him this season and and what does it look like and I'm hoping that it's creative and well thought out because I still think that he can be a big part of a good offense in the NFL. I don't think it has to be this gadget you know pull it out once every three or four drives for one play, maybe a second play if the first one goes really well like I think it can be, consistently worked into the offense whether he's lining up at a tight end type position or a wing back type position being used as a lead blocker at times because the funny thing is he's probably a better blocker than a lot of the wide receivers on your roster Uh, or you know lining him up at quarterback a lot which I think should be done like I really do think he should be at that spot because he can throw the football and he does provide just such a different look you want to talk about getting guys like Chris Olave and Mike Thomas in more one-on-one situations Taysom Hill being at quarterback is going to do that immediately. Now, you just signed Derek Carr for a reason, and you're not going to play Taysom, you know, 40% of the quarterback snaps. I get that as well. But I think to just kind of abandon it and, you know, move him back to like a wide receiver tight end type hybrid position is not necessarily doing your due diligence on what the potential of this could be. I think there's a situation in which Taysom plays, you know, let's say, 15 to 20 overall snaps in a game with 8 to 10 of those being at quarterback, I think that's a potential to be very successful for you. And, you know, that's still leaving Derek Carr the majority of the offense. And, you know, from what I know about Derek Carr and from what I've heard from him in the early goings, it sounds like he would be on board with whatever's going to help the team win. And if you're able to prove to him that that's in the best interest of the team, I don't think he'd have any sort of problem with it. I really don't. Um, you know, and, and overall I'm fascinated to see where this offense is because you do have some sort of an advantage in the, in the idea and the thought that the offense can't be a whole lot worse than it was at times last year. And I know that's, that's, that's maybe a a negative outlook to say, and there were games where the offense was productive. There were a couple really good Andy Dalton games. Most of them weren't, but there were a couple of good Andy Dalton games. Uh, there were a couple of times where Taysom Hill kind of took over and the offense looked productive, but for the most part, I think we can all agree the Saints offense needs to be significantly improved from a year ago and that's the idea behind bringing in Derek Carr and I think the other moves you've made Michael Thomas being in the building and as of now all reports are good that he's going to be ready to go those are all indications that they knew the offense needed to be better right there is still a question mark mixed in here with Alvin Kamara and I I just don't know if you're going to have an answer to that you know, look, it's June 21st. You certainly don't have your answer today. I'm not sure you're going to know on August 21st. I'm not sure you're even going to have a full resolution on September 21st, because when you're dealing with legal issues that are outside of the, you know, framework of the National Football League, you simply don't know. And and sometimes those things can happen, you know, relatively quickly, but more often than not, they take some time. And this one has certainly taken plenty of time and it's going to take some more. So, that's difficult because you don't know how much he's going to factor in. Does he play? And like I said, September 21st, does he play early in the season because this situation isn't resolved yet and then get suspended and all of a sudden you lose him once you're starting to develop a rhythm? Uh, I think your better scenario if you're the Saints is that you lose him before the season even starts, but at least you know, okay, we're you know, Kamara's going to be gone eight games. Kamara's going to be gone ten games, but you know that going in. I think that's certainly a lot more helpful as far as how you want to plan out your offense. Or does this never get resolved this season? And do the, does the court dates and the you know legal proceedings keep getting pushed back and back and eventually he plays the whole year? like that? That's possible as well. I think that's maybe the most unlikely of the three. But I do think that's going to be something that the Saints have to navigate throughout the rest of the offseason and, and into the season that's difficult. But having Jamal Williams and having Kendra Miller, the rookie from TCU, I think both really help that process out because I think you are in a position where right now I think you look at it kind of similar to the way you looked at Michael Thomas maybe last year, right? If he's there, that's awesome, and we hope he is because he's a great talent. If he's not, okay, we'll have to figure it out. And at receiver, they weren't necessarily super well-equipped to deal with it without Thomas at times, especially once Jarvis Landry went down, and that wasn't entirely their fault, right? Some of it was injuries. But I think at running back, they've done their due diligence. I'll use that term for the second time here in the segment to make sure that they have plans and options if Kamara's not in play. So, with all that being said, where does that put this offense, right? I think in your best case scenario in the NFC, you're slightly above average in in that in that regard. I think, you know, as far as just the 16 teams that are in the, you know, the NFC side of things, if you're in that 5 to 8 range of offensive production, I think you'd feel really good about that. And, you know, in the overall league, maybe put yourself between 8 and 10 maybe eight and 12 I think the AFC's better offensively than the NFC is right now especially with some of the quarterback talent at the, at the top so you know in that slightly above average area then I think you'll be fine with that if you're even 12 to 15th like I don't think you'd be crushed by it you know and I think that's a situation where if this defense is as we expect it to be um you know top 10 certainly I think is a fair assumption right to be top 10 in, in defensive numbers then you'll be fine. This is a team that was 22nd in scoring offense last year, 18th in yards a game on offense, 21st in points per play. Uh, Team rankings, by the way, has some great numbers if you want to look into this yourself. And then defensively, they were ninth in points per game, 5th in yards per game, and 8th in opponents, opponents' points per play. So they were top 10. So if you take those same numbers that you had defensively, you don't even have to get better. And that offense goes from being in the 20s, the low 20s, to, again, the low teens, 10, 12, 15th in rank. I think you're certainly a playoff team, and you start to really knock on the door of some of the accomplishments that you're looking to have here. And and I think that's seriously an option. And so I'm hoping that that's what takes place because I think it would lead to the Saints having a pretty successful season. And, you know, all things considered, an offseason that had a lot of ups and you know, certainly I'd say more ups than downs, but some questions here and there. The Derek Carr saga went on far too long for Kevin Foote's health, um, but it worked out in his favor in the end, right? All that ends up happening, and now you're sitting at a point where you go, okay, here's everything that's done. Everything's put into place. Let's see these guys go to work. And I think you're getting a, you know, a glimpse of that in training camp and camp, although it's always tough to really get a good evaluation. We'll see a little bit more of it in the preseason, and then look, week one it's going to be time to uh, – set things up and get going. And I think as of now, the Saints, the front office, once again, a a theme I brought up earlier in the show, we can't be too result-oriented. We have to trust in the process. And I think as of now, it's fair to say the Saints have put themselves in a position to be successful, in my opinion, from what they've done in the front office. Now, obviously, I'm not in the building every day. I don't know if the preparation is going the way it needs to be and things like that. But I think from the outsider's perspective, you can firmly say right now that the Saints did what they needed to do to put themselves in a good situation, and you can only hope it works out. But that's the National Football League. It's not going to work out. One team's going to win the Super Bowl. A lot of teams are going to be unhappy. we got to take a timeout, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about everything that's going on, kind of switch gears, get you set up, because later in the hour, we're going to talk with Christian Clark about the New Orleans Pelicans. That's all coming up next right here on The Game
0: this is rp3 and company on the game 1037 lafayette and 1041 lake charles southwest louisiana's sports station your home for the lsu tigers and houston astros a recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist take that dental hygiene This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: Game hotline is open this segment, 337-706-0111. If you want to get in on any of the topics we've covered today, certainly LSU baseball still alive, going to be playing tonight at 6 o'clock. As a reminder, you can listen to that one right here on the game. Um, We've also talked a good bit about the Houston Astros, and that's where I wanted to go next is not the Astros, but the AL West, the division that the Astros take part in. It's had some interesting storylines over the past couple of days, not only with the teams at the top, but the teams at the bottom and mixed in all together. And I wanted to kind of recap a couple of things that happened yesterday. Um, This one will start with the Texas Rangers. Now, it was good for the Astros because they, of course, are trying to chase down those Texas Rangers. They had fallen all the way to six and a half games back. Um, But the Rangers fell last night to the Chicago White Sox. That in itself wasn't the headline, though. A 7-6 ball game uh, that was kind of crazy if you think about it. It was a 4-2 lead for the White Sox in the seventh inning. The Rangers get two in the top of the seventh, two in the top of the eighth, and they lead it 6-4 to four heading into the bottom of the eighth inning. The White Sox, though, would fight back, got a couple of runs to tie this up at six, and then the play at the plate, and... This was one of the stranger, I think, plays and reviews that I've seen in a long time. Um, Essentially, what happened is Zach Remillard hit a single to left. Elvis Andrus is rounding third and heading to the plate. The throw comes in, and he's tagged out. And that appears like it's going to be the end of the inning. The White Sox tied it up at six apiece, but we're going to go to the ninth inning all-square. The play is then reviewed, and they rule that the catcher did not give the runner a lane to home plate, and so essentially, he's then called safe because of what is going to go down as catcher's interference because the catcher did not allow the runner a lane to home plate. Now, this is a rule, of course, this is kind of, you know, this rule's been tweaked and changed over the years, Um, but overall, I think we understand the. The, the basic need for this rule is that you don't want a catcher to stick his leg on the baseline and basically force a runner to try to slide in, and then you're really risking injury. But Jonah Heim, who is the Rangers' catcher in this ball game, I thought he gave him plenty enough space. Uh, and, and you know, without ha- without seeing it, basically he kind of had his foot on the plate as he was making the tag, but it wasn't, you know, blocking the front portion of it, and it wasn't taking up the whole plate at all. You know, I mean... He has to put his foot somewhere to field the throw. I guess, you know, it can be off to the left or right a little bit more than it was. But I didn't think he, you know, prevented the runner. Now, the throw beat him by a ton. This wasn't like it was a bang-bang play, and it's like, oh, his hand got caught on the guy's cleat, and that's why he didn't score. Like, he's out, reg- he's out regardless. And the funny thing about it, you get hometown broadcasts in baseball, regional broadcasts, and the Chicago White Sox, I heard the clip. They played it on, uh, I think, on Center. And they were just as shocked as as anyone who wasn't a White Sox fan would be. They were like, um, you know, we don't really get that call, but it's good for the White Sox, so awesome. You know, it, it it was kind of funny to hear that because I think they were just as confused as everybody was. So the Rangers get the bad end of a, of a tough call again, and I'll be interested. I will certainly ask Kevin Foote this when he comes on for footnotes from 9 to 11 this morning, by the way. Um, but I'll ask him his thoughts on it because to me it's kind of reminiscent of last week when we talked about the play where Jake Myers was hit on the helmet and it's like this rule that nobody understands where you're supposed to run in the baseline. I think this is kind of similar. I don't think I've seen this one as many times come up in recent years, but I would, uh, I will certainly get Foots' perspective on that because it was a strange play. But all in all, it helps out the Astros. I mentioned elsewhere in the AL West – the poor Oakland A's, right? They made this great run. They had this, you know, the nice crowd. The reverse boycott. People came out to support them. They've gotten back to their losing ways, and now they've lost six in a row once again. They're back down to nineteen and fifty-six overall. Um, they battled last night. That was a tough game. I ended up going to bed before the completion of it, but they lose uh, in walk-off fashion in the bottom of the tenth to the Cleveland Guardians, three to two. So two runs in the bottom of the seventh there for Cleveland end up tying things up. After the A's held a 2-0 lead, and then ultimately the the A's could not hold on in extra innings, giving up a run there. So Cleveland beats Oakland. And then the other scores here, the Yankees beat the Mariners 3-1. And overall, the Angels end up losing 2-0 on the West Coast. That was a uh, late start there between the Angels and the Dodgers, so they lose a game 2 zip So the entire AL West lost last night, except for the boys in Houston. The Houston Astros got the win. So you gain a game not only on the Rangers, you're now five and a half back, but you gain one on the Angels, who you're only a half game back of, by the way. And the Mariners and A's continue to fall down. So, you know, it's one game, it's one day. It's June 20th in Major League Baseball. It's not going to, you know, shift the major framework of the playoffs, but it was a productive day in basically every way possible. Now, I did want to talk a little bit about the Angels, and Kevin likes to make fun of me for you know, liking the Angels. I don't even really like the Angels all that much. I just really like watching the best players in the world play, and I think Mike Trout and Shohei Otani are number one and number two. Maybe not in that order. I think I'd go Shohei first and then Trout. Um, This idea and this notion that, that, that Shohei could be traded, it was brought up, you know, a couple of weeks back. It's been brought up throughout the offseason, right? If the Angels weren't in contention, it was going to make some sense to try to trade him and get some value back for Shohei because – He's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, and it's widely regarded and accepted that he's going to become the highest-paid player in the history of Major League Baseball. And I think that's going to make a lot of sense because he does things that no one has done in the history of the game, Um, pitching and hitting at the level that he does, right? So, you know, when he was first, the rumors, I just didn't think it was going to make sense unless the Angels were completely out of it. And early on in the season, they were hovering around 500 as they typically do. But they've made a nice charge lately, and, of course, they passed up the Astros, and now they're just five back of the Rangers. And so I, from this perspective, I'm seeming seeing it more and more unlikely that this is even possible. And, you know, we spoke with Bob Nightingale about it. He didn't seem like he thought it was a possibility. And, you know, we've had the other ideas brought up about just how much money Shohei brings in from a jersey sale perspective, getting people to the ballpark, uh, you know, those types of things. So, when you think of it from a business standpoint and the way the Angels, you know, let's remember these are businesses trying to make money at at certain points, well, at all points. That's a big factor in this. Um, And overall, I understand, you know, Kevin Foote's fear of, of them letting him walk without getting anything in return and feeling like that feels like a mistake. But I just, you know, unless they were out of the playoffs completely, and again, in today's day of the expanded wildcard format, it takes a lot more to be out of it. I just don't see them potentially giving up on what could be a playoff run with those two guys playing. I mean, imagine the buzz that's going to be even if it's a wild card series. Now, you know, now you get the wild card series as opposed to the game, which does matter here. Think about the buzz that's going to be surrounding Shohei Ohtani, Mike Trout and the Angels even if they're taking on let's say the Toronto Blue Jays in a three-game wild card series. Shohei on the mound in game 1 or game 2, however they want to slice it. DHing the other two games with Mike Trout starting in center field, batting second. I mean, it would be the marquee game of the playoffs. And I think the Angels have been so irrelevant, despite the fact that they've had the best player in baseball in Mike Trout for over a decade, and now they've had this other guy who's, by the way, this unbelievable two-way phenom in Shohei. I think they badly want to be back in that mix. And even if you traded away Shohei Otani and got back really good players, who you know, helped your franchise in a few years, you wouldn't get what you would get from Shohei and Trout making a run this season. And I think it's worth the risk. I think even if I'm the Angels, not only, hey, we're going to make some more money, we're going to sell as many more Shohei Otani Angels jerseys as we can, although at this point I'm not sure it's a wise investment given that there's a good chance he's wearing a different jersey next year. But hey, that's you know to each their own. We're going to make some more money with Shohei. We're going to put more people in the seats the rest of the regular season. We're going to have this playoff push where hopefully, if you're from their perspective, they can make a run and make the playoffs. And then if we get there, even if we get a wild card spot, we're going to have the most talked about and watched three-game playoff series that I can remember in baseball, right? Outside of like, you know, World Series matchups and stuff, an early round playoff matchup that featured those guys is going to be must-see. And by the I mean, look, think about this too. Now you're getting way far ahead of yourself in talking about matchups, but that wildcard matchup, that could be against the defending World Series champion Houston Astros, right? They're not leading the division right now, so they'd be right in that conversation. That could be against the New York Yankees. I mean, think about the storylines there. Angels, Yankees in a wildcard series with, you know, all the rumors that are, I'm sure, going to be even more heated up at that time about who Shohei's signing with in the offseason. Just a lot going on there, and it would be it would be fun to see. So I just thought, you know, I'd bring it back up. The Angels aren't trading Shohei Otani. They'd be silly to trade him at this point. Um, they're going to try and make a run at this. We'll see how big of buyers they are at the deadline elsewhere. I think they certainly could use another bat in the lineup. Anthony Rendon just went back on the injured list, by the way, so he can't stay healthy. But they're playing decent baseball overall, and we'll see. It's going to be tough for the Astros to to stay, you know, to to keep up with this AL West with the Rangers and the Angels playing the way they are. Um, and if Seattle ever wakes up and figures out what they're doing. It's only going to make it more difficult, but we'll see what happens. We got to take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to get back on the New Orleans Pelicans. We spoke with Ali Cassell yesterday. We're going to talk with Christian Clark today. See any updates on the kind of rumors that are swirling around. There was an update about who teams at the top of the draft are interested in picking, and that might impact the New Orleans Pelicans. So we'll get his perspective on all that and more coming up right here on RP3 and Company Well, the NBA draft is tomorrow and on a list of things that snuck up in my brain. The draft will take place tomorrow night. Victor Wembanyama is largely expected and, you know, pretty much definitely going to be the first pick in the draft, and he'll be heading to the San Antonio Spurs. But what happens at numbers two and three has been in far more question throughout the past couple of weeks and months and has only gotten more interesting with the New Orleans Pelicans getting into the mix at times. For potentially one of those next two players, Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson, being the main top prospects. To get some more perspective on the Pelicans' rumors that are swirling and try and make sense of what's true and what's not, we've got Christian Clark, Pelicans beat writer with NOLA.com. Christian, good morning to you. How's it going?
4: Hey, man. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself?
1: Doing all right and hanging in there. And, you know, I first I wanted to start with these whole rumor situation with the Pelicans because RP3 and I discussed it when the first started to come around and we didn't make much of it. We thought, you know, look, it's draft time. These rumors are going to happen. You know, they're not trading their top guys. This is all just talk. But then the more that came out, you started to go, man, maybe there is something to all this because you're hearing it from a lot of reliable sources that. Some of this stuff might be in the works. So, where were you when it first came out, and where are you now about these Pelicans trading up to the number three pick type rumors?
4: Yeah, so I would say I heard in like late May the Pelicans were really interested in Scoot Henderson. Um, you know, I checked it out, and I think it's definitely true. Like they they love Scoot Henderson as a prospect. I mean, I think there's some people the front office who who feel like he has a chance to, to truly be special. I mean, Scoot has been a pro for the last two years. Um, you know, and I think a lot of other drafts, if if Victor Wambanyama wasn't there, he'd probably be the number one pick. Um, and, you know, I, I think just his talent is a reason why you're hearing some of this stuff. And and if you just look at I mean, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson have been a duo for four years, and the Pelicans have never finished higher than ninth place. I just think it's it's natural for some of this stuff to bubble up because they just haven't won anything, and these two guys have been together for a while now.
1: So how much do you think is the differentiation between the Pelicans really like Scoot Henderson and really would like to go up and get him mixed with the actuality of this is what it would cost for those teams, and then how, where do you think the balance is and where the Pelicans were in those talks, and how much you know realism is there to the fact that they could potentially give up a guy like Zion?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the most likely outcome is that Brandon and Zion are, are still Pelicans after Thursday night. I, I checked in, you know, again yesterday, and kind of the word over there was, look, I think it's it's pretty unlikely something gets done to either move up to two or three. Um, that, was, that was the word over there. I mean, we'll see when we actually get to that night. Um, I think Charlotte, kind of all the indications are that they're going to make the pick it seems like they favor Brendan Miller, the, the forward from Alabama. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, on draft night, if Scoot Henderson is there at number three, do Portland and New Orleans re-engage and try one more time maybe of like, hey, do we want to try to get something done here? Um, you know, everything from Portland's side is that they would want Zion. So I'm, I'm curious to see if the two sides re-engage on draft night and, and talk about Zion at all.
1: Well, that's the interesting thing, too, right? Because we heard a report that Charlotte favored Brandon Ingram if they were going to make a deal, but then we hear Dame Lillard come out in support of Zion. And I think in the NBA specifically, you always wonder how much the stars are impacting decisions. So do you think if there's a deal to be made, it would be largely to the fact that Portland's trying to make Dame Lillard happy? Or do you think, again, it's just not that realistic because the Pelicans have the ultimate say of whether they're going to give Zion up and maybe they don't want to?
4: I mean, I think it's unlike, unlikely, but it, it doesn't feel accurate to me to characterize it as unrealistic. Um, I mean, Dame Dame wants to play with Zion. I mean, you like go look at his like liked tweets, like right. he's you know kind of like even indicating publicly uh, that he would like to play with Zion. And I understand why. I mean, that, I think that's an incredible basketball fit. Um, and you know, if you know, like Dame is regarded as one of the best leaders in the NBA, maybe he feels like. I can get a handle on this situation. He'll actually listen to me. Um, so, you know, I think one of the complicating factors is to make the money work. Uh, you know, the Portland Trailblazers—they just don't have that many pieces that make the money work, and I think would be attractive for the Pelicans to come back. Anthony Simons is one of those guys. Um, you know, he's a kind of an undersized shooting guard who's talented, but. Pelicans already have C.J. McCollum. I mean, part of the reason Portland moved C.J. McCollum was to create space for Anthony Simon, so he'd be kind of redundant here. Um, You know, Yusuf Nurkic, just uh, an average, between average and bad starting center in the NBA, gets paid quite a bit, a couple years left in that deal. So, I mean, the Pelicans, you know, if they wanted to do this and get scooped, might have to take back some contracts that, that they don't view as great.
1: Do you think if the Pelicans were to try to go the Scoot Henderson route, it it's not as much a rebuild as more of just a reset and a and a guy they think they can win with right away, or does that kind of you know turn the clock back a little bit and and make this team a you know more of an in progress type of team as opposed to just going all in to trying to win right away with Zion?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would I would say the latter because I mean the one thing we've seen in the last four years is like the guy who far and away drives winning the most on this roster is, is Zion Williamson. I mean, when he got hurt in early January, second place in the West, he passed the baton, and and Brandon Ingram and the rest of the Pelicans couldn't handle it. I mean, they were in ninth place by the end of the year. So, I mean, Zion's the guy who drives winning on this on this team, um, you know, kind of unfortunately. So I, I think, you know, they would be taking a step back. I mean, if it was up to me personally, I would be exploring ways to try to move Brandon Ingram for Scoot Henderson, like I would be calling Charlotte and saying, "Hey, look, we'll get off of BI, um, like, and get back Scoot." Like that's what I would personally be trying to do, um, just because I, I think Zion's just so good, and there's five years left on the deal versus Ingram, who's a good player, but but not you know a talent like Zion. There's only two years left on the deal.
1: Well, I do want to get back to some kind of draft strategy here with the options for the Pelicans, but I did want to at least bring it up. You know, don't have any interest discussing the specifics of Zion's off-the-court issues in the past couple of weeks, but it has been a bit alarming, I think, for some um, because at least in the past, all the issues were surrounded around his health and maybe his desire to get better. But now we start to get some other distractions going on. Do you think the front office is more or less alarmed than, you know, the general public is about what's going on? Or do you think this is something that they are uh, not really all that worried about and they think it's going to settle?
4: Yeah, I would would definitely say not overly worried about it. I mean, I think for being honest, um, you know, NBA players, this stuff happens a lot. Not a lot, but this stuff happens. And, you know, I think the difference is it doesn't bubble into public view. Um, So it's kind of the difference here. And, I mean, I – I just think it's the totality of stuff with Zion. And if right. this was happening and he was actually playing basketball, then like, no one would really care. But it's, it's all of it together. It's the fact that he never plays basketball. And C.J. McCollum is going on the record at the end of the season saying basically, like, Zion needs to diet better. He needs to care about his sleep. He needs to condition better. He needs to rehab better. Like, you've got teammates, you know, basically calling him out on the record after this disappointing ending to the season right. and then this stuff. So to me, it's just the totality of it.
1: Okay, so let's let's say the Pelicans do not make the move to get Scoot. They stay put with the roster and they stay put with their selection at number fourteen. Um, do you think there's a guy in that range that they can really zoom in on and try to target, or does it make sense to try to trade out of this draft? Maybe turn that you know pick into a player elsewhere. Where can they make the roster better if they choose to stick with Zion and Bi as the centerpieces?
4: Yeah, I've been told the the two things the the front office views as needs this offseason is rim protection and shooting. Um, The Pelicans were second to last in opponents' field goal percentage at the rim last season, and they're 23rd in three-point made shots. So those are two things they're trying to upgrade. Um, I mean, I think there's a a variety of ways they can go about that. Um, I think specifically with the 14th pick, uh, there's a lot of guys that they, you know, Pelicans, like main decision makers, the scouts, like they've, they've looked at. I mean, I think these past few days were about like whittling all that down into who do we really believe in. Um, to, like, to me, I think if Grady Dick, the you know, three-point shooting wing from Kansas there, 14, like that's a no-brainer. You do that all day. I think Jordan Hawkins, shooting guard from Connecticut, could get a look there. Bilal Koulibaly. Teammate of Victor Wembanyama in France. If he's somehow around at 14, I think that's a guy the Pelicans would be interested in. Um, but I think you know, like, there's there's like a long list of guys they're interested in, but like don't have consensus about taking. Um, so I'm fascinated to see what they're going to do because this time last year, I mean, it was like, hey, look, if Dyson Daniels is there at eight, we're going to take him. Like it was it was clear mm-hmm. that was what's was going to happen. It's just it's so there's just not very much clarity at all you know, one day before the draft.
1: Well, we'll get you out of here with this, Christian. Other than the draft and maybe making a move there, do you think there's any other major shakeups, assuming, again, that Zion and B.I. stay in place and they don't get traded on draft day? Do you think there's any major shakeups to the roster about, you know, the starting guys, guys like Jonas Valanciunas, or does it pretty much look like last year's roster with maybe a piece or two added from the draft elsewhere?
4: Yeah, I would say that Jonas Salanciunas is is the one starter to watch,
1: definitely. I mean, I,
4: I just think we saw last year, um, you know, he Willie Green didn't play him that much. I mean, the Pelicans' most used center in fourth quarters was Larry Nance Jr. I think that was kind of like one of the statistics of the season that the Pelicans went with, you know, like a 6-7 kind of power forward center hybrid over Jonas Valanciunas in in the fourth quarters most of the time. That's for defensive versatility purposes. Um, So I I think it's more likely than not that Jonas Valanciunas is on another team at the start of next season.
1: Well, we appreciate your insight, Christian. We'll see what they decide to do tomorrow, and I'm sure we'll have you on in the next couple weeks to discuss uh, who they end up bringing in and how they can fit into this roster. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you.
0: This is RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at the game, Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
1: What a Wednesday edition of the show. I think, look, we started off on the wrong foot. Everyone was upset about the poll question of the day. Ralph, I know you took it personally, Um, but the foodie poll question is going to return tomorrow. I've already made you a promise, and it's going to be a good one. It's going to have some thought. I mean, RP3 and I are going to actually – we, he doesn't know this yet, but we're going to sit down, probably have a meeting about it, put a lot of different ideas on the table, um, and ensure that we come back with a question tomorrow that's riveting, that makes that's thought provoking, um, that you know inspires good banter, and uh, you know is going to also encourage some calls. And you know, if you want to talk about the foodie poll question of the week, tomorrow's going to be the day. But today, our question was about the LSU baseball team. What do they need to happen tonight to, be, to beat Wake Forest, the number 1 overall seed, and force a winner-take-all game on that side of the bracket? 10% of you said another pitching clinic. Nate Ackenhausen and Riley Cooper put on a clinic last night. 10% of you say they need another one, maybe from Gavin Gidry, maybe Blake Money. 40% of you said the offense needs to go crazy. 2% say they need to be sharp defensively. Nobody likes ground balls and fly balls, apparently, and 48%... Said it has to be all of the above, and we have, live in studio, a special guest. Good morning, D-Lo. There he is. (laughs) I made it back. How was Arkansas in the midst of the night? Oh,
5: let me tell you. It was an amazing trip. Got to go to the College World Series for the first time ever. Driving through the length of Missouri and then Arkansas. There's no good way to do that, by the way. SEC country, those two. It's not an easy path to drive through the part of SEC country. Got back a little after 1 o'clock last night and was welcome home with that storm system that came yeah, through. that was serious. Yeah, that uh, had the little bit of the hail and the lightning. and the, Yeah, that made things
4: fun.
1: Yeah, no, it made it fun for me too because when, you know, the power apparently went out and so then this morning I was welcomed to the station with everything, blinking lights and systems needing to be reset and all that, but we somehow got it all together and went on the air and we've been doing it since then, so here we are. I was listening, bud. You did great today. Appreciate that. No, thank you. I
5: mean, I didn't catch the early part of the show because I was sleeping, but...
1: I listen. I did a segment on Justin <laughs> Verlander that like I knew I had in the bank at some point, but I didn't plan to use it today. But when you know, so kind of unexpected hosting duties, and they played, it kind of worked out well because they pitched against Justin Verlander. Pitched against him yesterday, and the Astros beat him. So I went back, revisited the 2017 trade and kind of the surrounding narratives oh, there. There and it is. There it you is. can't always have a result oriented mindset, but for the Astros, it certainly looks like it was a you know fantastic deal, and it and worked of out well.
5: course they would get
1: back on track by beating Justin Verlander. Well, and Alex Bregman, he's just a, you know, of course Bregman hit a homer off Verlander. It's of like, course he did. That's why I was hoping that Ellis should be in the World Series was going to be the motivating factor for Bregman. He just seems like a guy who just plays well when he has external factors against him in some, you know, maybe yeah. not against him, but just works well. Did want to thank, by the way, our two guests today, Christian Clark and Ron Higgins. They delivered. Well, Pelicans talk there. Some different perspectives. We've heard a lot about it. And, um, you know, I think the overall consensus now is that it's unlikely but still possible that the Pelicans deal, you know, one of their big dogs. And Christian said he he would trade Brandon Ingram for Scoot Henderson. He thinks that would be the deal to make, but he doesn't necessarily think it's going to happen. Draft is tomorrow
5: night. we got LSU baseball tonight as well. Elimination game.
1: For one of the two, yes.
5: Yes, for one of the two. Uh, LSU. Going to have to go Johnny Holstaff again. Could we see Coleman tonight? Could we see Gidry again? Could we even see Christian Little? It's going to be all hands on deck, but uh, we'll have it all for you, and we'll recap it tomorrow with D'Lo and yours truly back inside the FCO Development Studios.
1: The foodie poll question will return, and I already told the audience just now that we're going to sit down. We're going to come up with the best one that's ever happened because everyone was heartbroken this morning.
5: In the history of the show. Yeah. Word, it's coming. Close us out, buddy.
1: Well, again, thank you to the guests and everybody for listening along. Um, That'll do it today. We'll be back tomorrow, 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another, especially with the weather and still some wet roads and a ton of traffic issues, as Steve told us throughout the show. But Kevin Foote and Footnotes is coming up next right here on The Game.